This podcast is brought to you by the team at New Zealand Trucking Magazine. Remember to get your hands on the latest issue from your favourite retailer or subscribe now at nztrucking.co.nz. Keep on moving. The official podcast of New Zealand Trucking Media. Here's Dave McCoy and Murray Lindsay. Here we go again. Episode six of the Keep On Moving podcast as we look at trucking here. And you'll find we're going to be looking at it uh, around the world as well. We're sort of in different locations at the moment. You can hear us all a wee bit boomy, but that sort of adds to the flavor. Now, my partner in crime, uh, Dave McCoy, uh, the editorial director of New Zealand Trucking Magazine. G'day, Dave. G'day. You had a nice break, I hope. Yeah, no, I had a great break. Yep, went away, did some trucking, and uh, in the top of the South Island, generally, yep, fantastic summer. No, had a great time. Now, we thought our first podcast was going to be bigger than a Kenworth, and this month we feature the legendary Warwick Johnson, the man who, in many ways, Dave, pioneered literally moving big stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. And probably uh, because we've got Warwick on the show, Muds, we might say bigger than a Mac because one of year was famous for two big R700 Macs that he had. So keep on moving. Episode six is uh, bigger than bigger than a Johnson House Removals Mac. And what a magnificent interview it is. It's just, a, it's, a, it's one that's jaw-dropping. It'll keep anyone interested in trucks and moving houses. And really the formative years of both heavy haulage and also trailer building in New Zealand will just have you absolutely enthralled so what's this uh, uh trucking towards a better future competition dave yeah we're in year two of uh, trucking towards a better future and it's it's a bit of a twofold thing got a, it's got an environment and a climate bent you might say and we sort of we're targeting it sort of at things become generally more efficient then that'll probably be better for the climate but we're not just looking for that and and, and where it all came from was my good mate uh lindsay wood who's a as a uh, environmental activist and a, and a, and, a, and comes from an architectural background actually contacted me about the idea of uh, tapping into the to the brains of the New Zealand trucking fleet as they as they roam around the country and uh, and this this happened uh, you know a good couple of years ago and he sort of shoulder tapped me and said he was a bit cautious about what the editor of New Zealand Trucking Magazine might say about such a thing and I and I was like mate I'm wearing boots and all because we call it the truckernet it, it's the it's exactly the same as the internet truck drivers are dispersed through every corner of this nation and they see everybody else's business and I know I know through through my uh, you know I'm the biggest truck truck driver groupie there is and when you're in a group of them and they're talking about things they've seen and they go oh bloody Bob could do it buddy more efficient than that if he did it the way Sid does it but Bob never sees Sid because they're two different businesses but truck drivers see the business world and so what we're trying to do tap into that trucker net of uh, of uh, intelligence out there behind the wheel that sees so much commerce and say what have you seen that could improve the efficiency and it could be something really small it could be it could be something really big, you know, and uh, and and the, and of course, for me, the other sort of sideline benefit of is of it is, you know, I'm always promoting the truck driver, uh, you know, that my greatest heroes and mentors were all truck drivers, incredibly intelligent people, and so I want to promote, you know, truck drivers as a community subset because you know they're as worried about the next 50 years for their kids as anybody else and and they're not often heard because they spend so much of their time in such a small room delivering everybody else's future we're also talking in this podcast 
uh, with people in Aussie. This is a new innovation. In Aussie, we've got Mike, we've got Will in England, and at the news desk of our little trucker magazine, of course, Shannon and Millie, plus Dave Ching is talking classic trucks, and it's a beauty. But first things first, of course, the beautiful noise is that uh, the sound of a truck. And Dave, who was the winner? And perhaps put us out of our misery. What, in fact, was the truck? Well, the winner was was a, a, a someone I've known for many years, and he popped up, and man, he almost nailed it, bullseye. So Grant Grant Schofield, he, just a truck buff extraordinaire, and works in the operations office at uh, J Swap Limited, and he got the the engine and the vocation. He said it's an X15 Cummins and it's a logging truck. And he said, I can tell that by the way the throttle's being feathered going up the hill. And I said, mate, you're, you are onto it. But he had a couple of cracks at whose truck it was, but he never quite nailed that. And of course, the truck was Tutu and Raywin Manuel's mighty Western Star Ruamoko, and it was carting logs out of the uh, far east of the North Island, driven by the sublime Mr. Ray Fecky, who just was virtuoso driver when we were down there. And to make it easy this month, Dave, it's just engine and truck, right? Yeah, yeah, Muds. We're just going to go engine on truck on this one because uh, you'd be pretty, uh, you'd be pretty special if you got uh, the engine truck and whose actual truck it was. So let's just go. What's the engine? What's the truck? And uh, we'll see if we can uh, flesh out another twelve month subscription for the winner of that. Now, the best thing to do is just send me an email at davidnztrucking.co.nz and please uh, put in the subject line, uh, beautiful uh, episode six, keep on moving, uh, beautiful noise, and, and please put that subject in because I get thousands of emails a day and so you don't want to be lost in the crowd. So put in that subject line quite clearly, keep on moving, episode six, beautiful noise. How impressive are you? Thousands of emails a day. Oh, I am staggered. Thousands. <laughs> thousands of them. I think this is a good time to bring in a couple of our good friends, Gavin Myers, who's the editor of the magazine, and Carl Kirkbeck. I haven't quite worked out what he does, but he loves his trucks. And they're going to join us for a little segment called The Moot. And this time we're just going to discuss something that is very much trucking related, although it's Aussie based, Dave. Yeah, that's right. So we had this idea for the for the five minute moot, which is this, you know, we may have them from some time to time, sometimes we may not have them. And it's just, you know, an issue that comes up in, or something that pops up in the industry. And five minute moot to kick us off this month is uh, PR that came out from the National Heavy Vehicle Regulator in Australia. And it was all about uh, truck safety and uh, teaching uh, younger people who educate truck education, like around how to behave around trucks when they're going. And um, <clears throat> the uh, boss of the N uh, NHVR, National Heavy Vehicle uh, Regulator in Australia, Mr. Uh, Sal Tresito, said the campaign demonstrates how L and P license holders can drive safely around trucks, including rules to follow when trucks are 
turning, stopping, and how to overtake a truck. The campaign is initially proactive and is designed to grab the target audience's attention and start important conversations around road safety. Fantastic concept, fantastic program. The moot is what they've called it. Don't hashtag, like, don't hashtag UCK with a truck. So don't something uck with a truck. The thing with me is, is, is I just go straight back to what I was talking about before with uh, trucking towards a better future. You know, I'm a big I'm a big uh, uh, truck advocate and we sort of know that they can, you know, they can be, a, you know, they can be a, you know, a rough around the edges subset, but you know, why do we have to play on that? Why not give it a real professional sounding catchphrase name? You know, I don't know. What do you reckon, fellas? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're dealing with Australians though, Dave, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's, I think that's probably the first, they, they tend to be that, uh, that breed that, you know, it's all about shock. It's all about the um, sort of get a reaction and so forth. And it does get a reaction. There's, there's no two ways about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's also, I think, the generational thing, um, the whole hashtag thing. Certainly, they they get it, um, have a bit of a laugh at it and so forth. But, yeah, no, I see where you're coming from, man. From an outsider's perspective, which is a good way of describing me, really, we are talking about it here in New Zealand. What sort of conversations went on in Australia? People saw it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that was ultimately what it was about. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's interesting, Moses, that if you have a look um, at the actual the actual post that they're putting out on social and um, all the all the wording around it online is that what they've actually done is uh, since those original press releases they've replaced the hashtag UCK with MUCK so it, it becomes don't muck with the truck. Yep, I mean the thing for me is like okay then we'll it's sort of like what was wrong with that from the start if that was what the if that was what the hashtag was blocking why why not just start because there's nothing wrong with mark you know for me it's like they've started with something they've got some reaction and they've softened it down for the very reasons i'd like it softened down yeah you've got to ask yourself has there been that reaction has someone actually said something over there and said oh come on that's a little bit uh un pc and so forth and they've um like you say toned it down a wee bit but that i mean historically that's you know that's what they're like they tend to be uh up front and go for the um you know, go for the confrontation and conflict um you just got to look at some of the history um underarm bowling for example i mean that, that got a good reaction but um, oh, let it go no, Carl. I, let it go mate let it go but no let but the thing go, is but, <laughs> but the thing is, is that the thing is is that um, it, it's it says gav just said it's um it's certainly got the um look at it we're talking about it here in new zealand and though yeah it's uh certainly got a good reaction and um uh we probably need something similar over here I was going to say, if you've got some thoughts, uh, don't forget the same place. The, the same place Dave has a thousand emails a day. Dave, <laughs> it's a trucking <laughs> Okay, that might have been a mild exaggeration. <laughs> 980. Well, that's the moot. That's the moot this time around. You've got a subject you like uh, the troops to talk about. Once again, <laughs> the thousand email box. Oh, I'm never, never going to live this down. <laughs> David, New Zealand trucking, uh, nztrucking.co.nz. Now, one of the highlights uh, from New Zealand trucking media in 2021 was the launch of the little trucker down under mag, which I saw in a bookshop uh, at, the, at the airport, actually, right next to the, the current edition of the mag, which we'll talk about a bit later on. And it was great um, seeing it because I hadn't seen it in living colour. It was great. Anyway, let's get an update from uh, the editor, Shannon Williams, and our reporter, Millie McCauley. Hi, 
Hi. Hi, everyone. Shannon, response from the editor's desk. Little trucker down under. It's your baby. Issue one, volume one, number one. How's it been? Oh, well, the first issue went really well. Um, since it's been out to market, we've had a lot of feedback from the people who have read the magazine and the people who have contributed to the magazine. Um, we've had people send through emails saying how much they've enjoyed it. We've had people come through our Facebook page coming and telling us how much they love it. Um, One of the best things we've had is people sending us photos of them with their kids, holding the magazine, reading it. It's been really great. And of course, it's demonstrated, hasn't it, just how difficult uh, trucks are for kids nowadays to get to. And, you know, it's almost been like something to grab and, and at last something on trucks. Yeah, and I think the fact that it's focused on the kids, it's it's written by kids for kids. Um, it's definitely something that is for them. So I think that is something really special that they'll they'll have that they haven't had before. Millie, you're our first uh, sort of full time sort of well not full time, but you know what I'm saying about <laughs> our first regular yeah. junior reporter on Little Truckers Magazine. You're the daughter of a real live uh, truck driver. Yeah. Uh, how was experience? How was the experience for you? Did you enjoy it? Did you did you like the whole process? Was it fun? It was definitely really good to be part of something that like everyone has really wanted as you're saying Dave like yeah. a way to connect you know the younger audience with the whole transport world and to be part of that it's been really cool and really fun to go out and talk to truck drivers and even go trips with my own dad and like be able to share them with other people. What's coming up this month Millie where have you been have you got to give us away any secrets for the autumn issue that's that's not far away? We do have a really cool meet the fleet coming up with APL Direct General Manager oh, so cool. I think that'd be really cool that's Jake Lambert and that will be really exciting I think because that's such a cool company yeah and so did you get to go there and meet Jake and and, I sure did I went and we had a chat and we even got a tour around the facility there at Hamilton it was super cool Shannon a little trucker down under is your first introduction to the magical world of road transport and trucks how's it been for you from that aspect yeah really cool um so I I haven't had much involvement in trucking before like the the biggest I've known about it is my dad drove a truck when I was a kid um we got to go in there a lot sometimes he was a furniture mover type of guy and had a big truck um so getting to know everyone in the industry so far has been really fun and just the different types of trucks there are and I think that's something readers will enjoy with the magazine is that we've got a whole range of different types of trucks different brands across Australia and New Zealand in there um and that's something I've enjoyed learning about so I hope people start enjoy learning that as well fantastic and of course you touched on the one of the really hot points for the magazine there is little trucker down under which means it's us and our greater our great friends across the tasman our, our australian family so we want the magazine to be across both countries don't we definitely and i think that's a really good point to make is that while we are very close to australia there are our cousins across the pond across the across the tasman is that the landscapes over there are very different to New Zealand. So it's really cool to learn about and hear all these really cool stories about the the different types of techniques and uh, skills that you need to learn to be able to drive trucks in Australia and compared to New Zealand because the environments are very different. Yeah, I'm a young kid. I've just heard Millie or I've just seen her on the cover of the book and I've seen the book and I'm thinking, oh my, how, how, do, I, how do I get myself in front of this thing? So it, Shannon, what do they do? How do they do it? First, you have to love trucks. Uh, second, uh, you just need to get in touch with us so you can... You you know, get in touch with us via email or you can get in touch with us by our Facebook page and just, yeah, if you've got a cool story to tell, would love to hear about it. Or even if you've just got some cool images to share, um, if you've passed a truck on the road or you've been to somewhere that has some cool trucks that you've taken some photos of, we'd love to see them. So my email address is shannon at nztrucking.co.nz. 
or you can check us out on Facebook. Just look look up Little Trucker Down Under on Facebook and you'll be able to find us. Thanks so much, Millie. Thanks so much, Shannon, for coming on the podcast. And we everyone can hardly wait to see issue two. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Certainly such a treat having uh, Shannon and Millie on the team, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. And what a great job they've both done. I mean, Shannon's just grabbed hold of Little Trucker Down Under magazine and and she's uh, really enjoying having a, a cover-to-cover magazine to look after of her own. Fantastic job as editor. Um, just such a great addition to the team. And of course, you know, the kids like Millie McCauley just restore your faith in the future. Just so much energy and just wanting to get out there and do interviews and, and just, you know, promote the promote the hell out of the industry that, that she's been a part of because her dad's a, dad's a real-life trucker. Keeping thousands of companies at their most productive, the name Mitsubishi Forklifts by Centra Forklifts has become synonymous with quality, reliability and value for money. Our distinctive green trucks can be seen at work sites and in warehouses all around the world. With Mitsubishi Forklifts, reach trucks, order pickers, pallet trucks and more, all serving the backbone for some of the busiest and demanding operations around. Innovative design, cutting-edge technology and uncompromising quality are the standards that define everything we do. So if you are wanting short or long-term lease options, or to buy, contact the team at Centra Forklifts, your Mitsubishi Forklifts dealer in New Zealand. Phone 0508 367 548 or visit www.mitforklift.co.nz. It's the Keep On Moving podcast. Now it's time for our feature interview this week with Warwick Johnson. Yeah, the book is called uh, Prime Mover, The Remarkable Life of Warwick Johnson, and it is remarkable. I sat for an afternoon with Warwick a a few Fridays ago and uh, was just absolutely in awe of this man's life. He has been the boy's own annual Biggles adventure. He's looked on life and challenges with nothing but fun and adventure, and how can we tackle this? It's an awesome, awesome listen. Here we go. Warwick Johnson, the man. Here we are with Warwick Johnson. The book is called Prime Mover, The Remarkable Life of Warwick uh, Johnson. For any self-respecting New Zealand truck buff, the name Warwick Johnson will need no explanation. A true pioneer of New Zealand's modern road transport history with a slant on building transportation, obviously. His contact list is a who's who of those who were the cornerstones of both trucking and trailer building in our country. His own contribution extends well beyond that of merely transporting buildings and over-dimensional loads. His life has been one that is a truly a boy's own adventure annual. Warwick Johnson, thank you so much for having us in your home today and for giving us a couple of hours. Yeah, well, it's a lovely day today. It's not raining and it's a real house removal day today. It's only Friday, so that's all right. <laughs> mm. I want to start the chat with, I want to read the first paragraph of the dedication right at the start of the book it says first and foremost this book is for all of the men and women who shared my life work and adventures you could say we collectively took the bull by the horns and lived for the day-to-day challenges in our final years our bones may creak and groan but those memories endure forever and then opposing that is a photograph of warwick and his dad and <laughs> carrying my share carrying yep and the, and the <laughs> caption says my father instilled in me the importance of carrying my share yes, of the load and so we start in 1933 with dad bert and mum hazel and and you're on the world and you're away that's right yeah i was only a young fella of course and i don't remember much until i was about four or five i know i had an injury when i was four i slid off the roof of a v8 
car, the number plate pierced my eye, so I've been a one-eyed house removal guy all those years. <laughs> nobody ever knew that I had a bung eye, and I've still got a bung eye, but nobody, no, I don't tell people that. So that was really the start of, of things. It's really interesting because your life's been punctuated at either end with our pandemics and epidemics because you, in your early life there was the polio and now we've got COVID, isn't it? So you've had uh, pandemics at both ends of your, of your life. I saw so many things and changes and I learnt that um, you had to learn. You, uh, a practical experience was the best learning curve you could ever have. And when you see something that somebody else did that was wrong, you, you buried that in your head because you had to know that there was something better to be had. And uh, I, I think that I took on board the fact that the stress was the, the biggest enemy in life. And I, I think at an early age, I, the stress level was something I left behind. I didn't, I didn't bother with the stress. I always looked about for today and tomorrow, all my life. And people say, don't you worry about that? I said, no, there's nothing to worry about. That was yesterday. Yeah. And uh, a fellow will ring up and say, I've tipped a, a bloody house off. And I said, well, go and jack it back up again. Put it back on. <laughs> so it, it was no good crying over spilt milk, was it? No, that's uh, exactly right. Yeah. And so your entry into house removals, even though it was a family business and, you, and uh, yeah, Hazel's dad Yeah, I was the third generation. And my mother's father, old Pop Jack, started in 1886. And he was hugely influential, he, wasn't he? He came up the, the Waikato River on a paddle boat and jumped off that. And <laughs> a chap, he said, well, he, what did you do? He said, oh, I'm a carpenter. He said, are you any good at pulling down a, a shed? So Pop did that. And, uh, and that's sort of how the family went. And... Uh, they had a very large piece of land in Hamilton East, about seven or eight acres, and uh, that was where Pop built what's called the homestead, and uh, that's where the yard was in McFarland Street. So then um, we move on to the generation of my dad, and uh, Dad's father was a, a station master for looking after the trains, and they built the railway lines, and and uh, Dad ran away from home when he was about 16 or 17 from Matamata, and uh, the reason he left there, Dad said he was sick of crushing up and boiling the acorns for the pigs. <laughs> so he cleared out and, and came to Hamilton and Pop, and his guys saw him leaning on a fence watching them shift the building. And they said to Dad that was he interested, he could have a bit of a job, but there'd be somewhere to sleep and a bit of coy, but there'd be no money. But Dad said, that'll do me. And believe it or not, after being there for a year or two, when I look at the, the history... He met the boss's daughter, which was my mother, and he, he married my mother. So that was Pop's daughter. My, my mother was Hazel, a fantastic lady. A, a change came in our lives when he won a, a building society ballot, and there was an acre of land with a very big old villa house right in the middle of, of Hamilton East, and uh, the, the £2,000 ballot that he got was sufficient to buy the acre and the five-bedroom house, but it was terribly overgrown. And uh, the people that, that owned it, their sons had gone overseas into the military. And, uh, of course, for, for me, I suppose you could say that's where we started to learn how to light a fire. And uh, we used to have horrendous fires and burning all the trees and rubbish. And uh, many a day I'd singe my eyebrows and my hair. But uh, <laughs> uh, that was at an early age. I was only maybe eight or nine, maybe ten. Yep. And, uh, yep. I think you learn the parables that you learn is something you never forget. My mother was an absolute saint. She was the in-between, my dad and, and her. If dad was going to give me a hiding, mum interfered. So I, she might have saved me the hiding. Me, I, 
I used to say I had more hidings than hot dinners, but the, <laughs> I was always in trouble doing something. <laughs> and your own uh, entry into the world of the, the family business, the house removals, was, was a bit of literally a whirlwind because you were on a farm when the yeah, tornado the, hit the, Hamilton. What happened, the, uh, the polio epidemic in 1947, yep. and it closed our school. I was at primary school, and uh, around about November, December, the school closed down, and, and as soon as I hit home, Mum said, you're going out onto a farm at Rukahia, where they were, were friends of, of Mum and Dad. And believe it or not, of interest, that farm was right alongside the Rukahia aerodrome, where about 400 aircraft had come from the Pacific. And any spare minute I had, I used to sneak under the fence and jump on the planes and pretend to fly them. So that was about that. <laughs> and then the, uh, the bid came to go back to school, and around about February, be March, April, the next year, I decided that I could probably go into the rural and be a farmer, and uh, I wasn't interested. I had never even a thought of anything to do with building removals. By chance, it happened the day that I was leaning on a fence where I shouldn't have been, and the headmaster gave me six of the best, so I told him where, he, where I was going. I told him what I thought of him, and I didn't go back to school. I think I was only, um, I was only 13 or 14. I went home and told Mum I, I couldn't sit down, my ass was that sore. Uh, she put me onto a farm then at Matamata, so I spent five months of my time there until the 25th of August 1948, when the tornado roared through Frankton, Hamilton, and uh, my dad was there shifting these mill houses that were sectional. Three Arctic loads had just disappeared to Mamaku, and the only load they were standing in didn't tip over, but it smashed everything else. So Mum came and got me in the Model A, and uh, that was my days of being a rural farmer. The old fellow, Mr Thurwell, he said, boy, you pack your bag. Mum came in the Model A, and uh, and going home, I thought Mum was pretty nervous and tetchy, but I learned later that she'd never driven a car before, she never had a licence, and the Model A was a hard case thing anyhow. But So uh, that was the 25th of August, 1948. So you could say that was it. That's where it all got started. That's where it started. And I was as skinny as a rake, and uh, but OK, I was OK. And uh, the hardest part, I think, there, that I already knew so much, I probably knew more than the guys that that Dad and his partner employed because of our previous years. Yeah, And you had such great mentors and men to teach you. Yeah. I, that was a, when in the latter time as I grew a bit older and I became more self-efficient, the guys wouldn't listen to me because I was too young and who the hell are you? What do you know about it? So uh, I did have that problem. Mm. Mm. Interesting. And, of course, uh, compulsory military training. You seen, you Eventually yeah, you got was, called uh, up to do your bit. That was interesting. I, I, uh, I was 18 years of age and uh, turned 19. And, of course, I... Uh, it was the eighth intake, and uh, we all had to go to Frankton, get in a train, and go to Pepakura. So there were four carriages there, but one of the wags had disconnected the uh, the wagon, and uh, when the train took off, it left us behind. So there was a bit of kerfuffle. But when we got to Pepakura, we had the, the daylight beaten out of us because somebody must have rung up and told them <laughs> we were a bunch of rebels. It continued like that. We marched into a big hall for uniforms and sandpaper clothing, and... Uh, I was walking across the ball ring. I didn't know you, you, you weren't allowed to walk on the ball ring, but diagonally I was going across the ball room and the, the sergeant major, being a pom, he yelled out and told me I was on charge and he told me to double away and pointed to his hut on the side. Little did he know I'd already shifted a hundred of those damn things and I knew very well what it was about. 
the door on the side and the windows on the other side. So I ran in that door and out through the window and kept the line of sight so he wouldn't know me out of 800 guys. <laughs> so that was probably my day in the army. But mm. one thing I did pick up from the army years in the book was it didn't take long for them to put you in charge of men. Yeah. And so there's a natural leadership the, the, thing there yeah, going it, on. It, it, I don't know how that happened, but, um, yeah, they, there was uh, 16 of us in our half share of the hut and there was room for a separate bedroom and they gave me the job as a, a hut superintendent or commander or whatever you call it. And the guys, of course, were all fresh off the turnips and uh, I said to them, look, you guys, <laughs> We've, we've got to just buckle in. We're here for 90 days and we've just got to make the best of it. And I said, we've all paid tax. I said, let's get some of it back. And I said, well, we'll do something about it. You wait and see. So within days of being there, the the superintendent or the guy that, that, that run the army outfit was Major Fowler. And he found out I was a, I was a, a house removal guy. And he, he pulled me to one side and before I knew it, I had a, a Land Rover with multi-pots of food and, and my job was to shift these particular buildings. So I, I would hand-pick my guys out of whatever and, and, of course, we'd spend time shifting the buildings rather than going on bloody point duty. Hmm. And, and you, taught, you taught guys to drive. Yeah, well, of course, being me being 19, I've been driving trucks since I was about 16. Dad got a Chev truck brand new around about that time, 47, 48 was a four six ton share and dad was used to the buggy the horse and carts and he was what i call a hopeless driver so me being me if i washed the truck and looked after it i could drive it so i did that and one of the incidents happened that we were doing a job where we needed to go down to roost shipping and get sand so i pulled under the hopper and filled the truck up with probably three or four meters of of, uh, of sand pulled up alongside the office and the manager was his name was jack watts what do you got there, boy? He said, leaning down, talking at him. And he wore big, thick glasses. I knew he was blind as a bat. But anyhow, I said, Jack, I, I think I've got about three yards and a uh, bit of a delay. He said, doesn't look like three yards to me. If you say a, more like a yard, I said, you must be blind, you silly chuck. Anyhow, the reason was that if he had to pay on his docket book for three yards, he had to pay royalty and tax for the sand that he dug out of the river. So by only having a metre or a yard... Uh, he only paid for the royalty for a yard, so <laughs> the rest of that job, every time I turned up as a 16-year-old with a with a truck with three <laughs> yards of sand, it was just another yard. So, uh, <laughs> so I learned how to drive a truck when I was 16, 17, 18. Yep. When the time came for my traffic licence when I was 18, the local cop was Darby Finlayson from the Waikato County, rang him up and I said, I really need to have a bit of time. I said, you better come out. So he came out to the yard and he pulled up and he's beaten up old bloody county car. And I don't need to test you. He said, I've been seeing you for the last two years. So he just sat down and wrote out the ticket. He said, what do you want? And I said, well, I need a license to drive that truck. So that's it. That's how that, that's... So, that's, so of course, when I went into the army at 19, I was fully versed in how to drive a truck. I knew, I knew all about that sort of a thing. And of course, the other guys were all fellows off dairy farms and from wherever they came from, Jenny from the South Waikato. I suppose by realising that I knew what I was talking about, that it wasn't long before we were, we were teaching these guys how to drive GMCs, how to change gears, and uh, the GMCs actually were like brand new. They, they, they still had the fresh paint on them. They were, they were beautiful trucks. So therefore, our 60-odd guys all got heavy traffic licences. It set them up for life in many ways, yeah, didn't it? Yeah. Never thought about it at those times. Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. 
So yeah. moving, getting back into your, so you've done that. You've done your ninety days for the Queen and your uh, oh, yeah. and the, the army, and you're back and you're <laughs> that back. It was a hard case day. The uh, I was on point duty, and uh, I was probably about twenty or maybe twenty one. But it, it was the day that the Duke of Edinburgh and, and the Queen came to New Zealand for whatever reason. And I was on point duty at Ulster Street in Hamilton and this Land Rover pulled up and the uh, the driver said, oh, the Duke's here, he wants to talk to you. Any chance of a, of a beer and a pee? He said, oh, I, I have the pee first, but maybe the beer later. And I said, well, OK, well, you jump in, he said. So I jumped in the Land Rover and took him down to our headquarters at Knox Street and up into the ramp into the building. And uh, I said, the toilet's down there. Do you need a hand? He said, no, I can manage. Of course, when he emerged out of that, I, I said, well, the beer cabinet's locked up. But I said, well, break the padlock. But I said, you've got a sign on the door that you've pinched a bloody <laughs> bottle of beer. So, <laughs> so he did that. So once he drank, had his pee and his beer, we went back to him. He dropped me off at Point Judy and he probably told the Queen where he'd been. I don't know what he said, but the... Uh, it was quite an introduction. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Oh, hang on, before we go back, can you tell everyone about the flamethrower toilet? Being in, we were the first arty platoon, we were, we were called the transport section, and our job was to go ahead of the recruits. In this case, there was about 400 guys going to go to a place called Tihoi, which is on the western side of Mangakino, and in those days it was just scrub and, and rubbish and uh, rabbits and hares. And, uh, so anyhow... We were there and uh, the deal was we had to establish the cookhouse and had to do the latrines, which was a piece of scrim on sticks. And we had a, a plate with about seven holes that we hand sawed cut in it for, so the guys could squat and sit. So I said to the guys who were digging the trench and it was in sand, I said, we'll dig outside the scrim. And uh, I said, we'll get that flamethrower thing that we had in the truck. We'll sit that. So anyhow, little be known, the guys that sat in there because they were, they were trying to hide. They didn't want to listen to anything else. And they were all sitting in there with their backsides. And, uh, and so I lit this flamethrower that tossed the flame about seven, about 20 feet through the trench. And it let out a howl. And all these guys sort of realised that they were on fire. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. I think you had to have a sense of humour. And uh, I think I shared that with the guys. And uh, I suppose you could say the when you're a young fella, you're paying a third of your wages in tax. And... I said to the guys, we've just got to get some of that back. So anyhow, in that same week, we ended up being at um, Moose Lodge at uh, Rotoiti. And on our way there, it quite a while when you got 17 or 18 GMCs. And on the, one of the GMCs, we had seven Indian motorbikes. And they were, they were going to be whatever. So when we got halfway at Rurufukaitu, senior guys that were, they were constricted as who they were, they thought they were gung-ho guys. One was a school teacher, I don't know what the other fellow was, but they were lieutenants and all that, and, and I by this time was a corporal or a sergeant. So anyhow, they left us in the in the hay paddock with all these trucks and pitched the tents, and this is about one or two o'clock in the afternoon, and you can imagine a bunch of guys all fidgeting around us. I said, let's get these motorbikes off the truck and we'll have a, we'll have a motorbike rally and we'll <laughs> peg out the side up the hill and around there, which we did. And, of course, we were in a hay paddock with the grass about two feet high. And so, of course, we pegged it all out. And one or two of our guys were actually motorcycle clubs, and they knew a little bit about it. So, anyhow, we had a ball. We wrecked the seven motorbikes. We <laughs> chucked all of them back in the back. And, and, of course, our two NCOs or seniors didn't end up coming back until it was dark. And come the morning, of course, so 
I got all the guys up and we pitched our tent and we buggered off because we knew we were going and, and our two guys were still shicker in the in the tent. So you can imagine the, the farmer in the morning looking at his hay paddock because we'd stuffed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. The book's called Prime Mover, The Remarkable yeah, Life of sorry. Warwick Johnson. I've got Warwick Johnson here with me. We're having a wonderful chat and an interview and we're going to move back into After the Army House Moving. And uh, you, your dad sort of retired, and you went into business on your own. And then blame me down, he come back and, and uh, against uh, yeah. as opposition. Yeah, what happened there in nineteen fifty two? Um, I suppose I'd been working with him for four or five years, and it was all right. I never had an argument, but I could see that there was an opportunity in Hamilton. There was eleven transit camps that the Americans had, and they were huts that were twenty eight feet by ten feet. So in the old language, whatever that's about twelve metres by three and a bit. And the idea was Dad had this trailer built specially to shift them. Too cumbersome. You couldn't get into the yard. The opportunity for me, I I spied a a bus chassis sitting at the local Bedford people. It was an SB Bedford, 1952, with just a set of chassis rails and an engine. So I took it to the local uh, Pomeroy's, the bodybuilders, and I said, build a cab on it. And they had struggled to find the doors, so I said, well, take them off. Those dairy company trucks that got parked up there, they wouldn't miss a couple. So we ended up with the doors and were able to build the cab on this particular truck. And the, the truck was a fantastic success. For 20 years, we drove that truck. It was a, absolutely outstanding. And being a, a bus chassis, it was terribly strong with a good low chassis. So I painted the truck blue. Our trucks were green, so I painted it blue. When Dad and Mum found out what I'd done, there was a bit of hostility and... Uh, the accountant arrived one morning about seven o'clock and I said, what the hell are you lost? And he said, no, no, he said, we're going to have a meeting. And I said, well, I've got things to do. No, no, no. Unbeknown to me, they had arranged to set up a company and that was 1952. And they gave me out of a thousand shares, that'd be a thousand pound, I got 200 pound. So I was in the money. So I became a shareholder. So move on and we go to uh, 1957, 58. And by that time, we're doing those transit huts and all that. And through the ministry local, there was a guy called Ben Waters. Anyhow, he talked to Dad about shifting these buildings that were merry merry. They had to go to Mangakino. And Dad told him, he said, look, he said, we're not interested in that. <clears throat> he walked out the yard and, and he got on his push bike to ride away. And I, I waylaid him and I said, what's this you're talking about, the buildings? And he said, well, your dad's not interested. I said, well, why don't you talk to me? I must have been about 20, 21. And, uh, and I told Dad what I'd done. So anyhow, it was 123 mile, I reckon a pound a mile, I'd be in the money. I went to the ministry up the, up in Day Street and I signed a piece of paper that said I'm involved and Dad got the pricker and he said you can have the company, which I took the company on. And of course it was a, a two-year event to shift these 200 houses to Magikino. So what what happened, which was rather interesting, there was 200 of these so-called houses and the idea was the ministry had a set out a specification and uh, it didn't talk about tandem running. And I had that in my head that if I had the second truck, that my one pound a mile going to Magakino for 123 mile, coming back with the second truck. So every time my speedo on my truck was actually my bank balance. The long and the short of it was uh, I took on the contract and uh, successfully did the job. Being successful, the money came through the till and uh, my dad and my younger brother Graham, um, unbeknown to my mother, he got another truck and trailer designed and built by Tids and, uh, and Hawkins. The long and the short of it was, 
I had opposition. I had my father and my brother Graham running along with Bert Johnson and son. And when they, they'd asked Dad where I was, oh, he said to be at Magakino or Turangi somewhere. Can I be of some help? No. So, of course, straight away, I, I the heckles on the back of my head. Yeah, that was probably a, a, a bit of pill to swallow. And But you worked really hard until you were able oh, to buy sure. them out. Oh, oh, it was endless. And, of course, I had a wonderful bunch. Of, there were three other guys and myself, and by that time we were... We were a real hardcore bunch of guys and people would come onto the job and they'd say to, to, you guys don't talk. And I said, well, we don't have to talk. We know each other. We know we know exactly what we're doing. That went on for some years and um, in the end, uh, I, I was so annoyed about my brother and what was happening and and, <laughs> and I suppose I was the fit rat in the family. And uh, I, I, I took my brother on to task. I said, well, I'm going to buy you out whether you like it or not. So... I, get, I had a 10-acre block with a house in Hamilton, so I said, you could have that, I'll have your gear, which I did. Of course, the, the era was such it was such a fantastic era. There were so many big projects. There were dams, there was the cow rail, there was the dam. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Matahina, yeah. there was, it out was of, endless. Out of being a kino, the MDF that built the Murray Murray Power Station, they took on the paper mill at Caxton at, at Carrow. Chief there came to me and he said, Warwick, he said, uh, we've got all that row of houses there and the 400 huts. He said, all that's going to car out. Have you got a, you got a price? you got something in your mind? I said, well, it's going to cost you a dollar or two. He said, don't worry about the money. He said, I'm telling you, I want you to do it. So anyhow, tandem again. These houses were, were Keith Hay built, pre-built that were sitting on it. Anyhow, there were 20, maybe 25 of those and complete with furniture and, and all. We would jack them up and we'd end up in Carrow the next day and the people who were all their furniture was in it and everything so uh, so didn't you have to put them on the train probably back in the early days and the stupid railway had a thing to do with licensing and you couldn't get a permit to shift over about 30 mile but because we had a building on that was say 25 30 foot wide the railway couldn't handle that so we uh, really were fortunate we got a license for the whole of the north island for relocating uh, transportable buildings or building material, which was a, a really a, a fantastic plus. Yeah. Mm. So it was the smaller buildings that was, went on the rail. Huts, huts that huts went, on, went the rail. on the rail. And they, they, when I put the pressure on the railway, they could only supply uh, four railway wagons. No, seven. Seven UB wagons. So they took four huts to each wagon. And uh, so we roped them on, and the, the deal was that they'd end up at, at Carrow, but they, they couldn't go through the tunnel, they couldn't do a lot of things, so they ended up at Rotorua, and we had to go and pick them up from there. By that time, we had two truck and trailers in our Bedford. We could shift about 17 or 18 huts in one go, and we'd arrive at Carrow, and then we'd spend back to the railway yard at Rotorua and shift those other ones. So the, by and large... Um, yeah, that's what we did. So with the Keith Hay homes from Mary Mary that went to Cowrell, were you able to do that overnight? Actually, in those days, it was daylight. And uh, right. when I say, yeah, daylight, we'd leave Mary Mary at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We tried to work it. The, we had a problem we were, to get through Hamilton, so we had to deviate round through Rotatuna and get back to our yard at Tamahiri, which was perfect for the spot. So we refueled our trucks with petrol, and, uh, and then we'd leave about 4am in the morning and we weren't supposed to but it was still it was the imperative to get out on the road and get cracking and uh, we'd end up going through uh, uh, Rotorua through the back of Rotorua and through the uh, Rotomar Hills and all up round through there and of course they'd never had buildings go through there so you could imagine me with the we invented a chainsaw about that time 
and the, going through Hongi's track and a few places like that, we were very good at giving them a haircut. Right. And, uh, yeah, so... Uh, so what were you pulling them with, truck-wise? It was rather interesting because i proven with Ross Todd Motors, they had the franchise for the international trucks. And way back in, when I got the Mary Mary contract, I went to Ross Todd and I said, I've got a piece of paper here that says I've got 200 houses. I said, I haven't got any money, but I said, I need a truck. So Norm Todd, he was one of the directors, and he laughed, and he said, let's have a look at the paper. So within seven days, they had a brand-new international there for me. He said, Warwick, try this, away you go. So uh, that was the beginning of a fantastic friendship with Norm Todd and, and Jim Ross, the pair of them. They're a bunch of hard cases. So the uh, international, they were petrol, and uh, they used petrol at about two gallons two gallons of petrol, so every truck we had to have 44-gallon drum of petrol as well, so they were, they were, you know, petrol was about one or six a gallon. And so you were, you were at, a, at a pound a kilometre, you were in the money? Yeah, <laughs> well, never thought about it, but uh, different people said I'd go broke, but uh, the fact that we were tandem running, now what I must say, with that government contract, what it said, the Ministry of Transport had to provide the pilot, so that was okay. So sure, prior to that, Dad would use the Model A with a dunny door with a go-slow wide loading and a red flag, and, and then the, the uh, Ministry of Transport said that they had to provide the pilots. So that was all right. So we arranged for every other day at Mary Mary to have a Ministry of Transport pilot. It took two years, and we, we tandemed those houses out of Mary Mary to Mangakino. We... We had the fantastic two-way radio supplied by Tate from Christchurch. It was the best thing that ever happened because in those earlier days you had a, a two-way radio with crystals and, and the vibration on the truck, you could throw the, the, the two-way radio out the window. They were, but the Tate one um, came up with a, with a, I describe it as like a lot of wires soldered onto a piece of cardboard and uh, bolted them in the truck and we actually, they were absolutely fantastic. So then we had a, a pack set with, with a, a jumper leads we'd, we'd bolted on to the uh, old Zephyr. We generally had worn out Zephyr cars as cop cars and uh, the jumper leads, we'd, we'd, we had a red light up on top of that sign that we screwed onto the top of the Zephyr. So here we go again, here we are with a red light and the cop with our two-way radio and he was our pilot and uh, all those two years we never ever had an accident, never ever, never ever ever. And uh, the cop did it. <laughs> Here's the other funny part. When we get to Mangakino, the cop was fairly well buggered and, you know, it was a slow journey in those days. So he'd don off his cop gear and he'd put his boots on, his old clothes, and he'd give us a hand for an hour or two. And, of course, there was always a, a few dollars passed, passed in, would be in pounds, shillings and pence. But the, the cops in those days were the same age as myself and we were like a family. Yep. And uh, they just loved it. They loved the fact that, that we shared the, the, the time, yeah. Yeah, and you said that in the book that the police in those days were terribly paid. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, incredible. Between the Mary Mary Cowrow and, and the Mary Mary Mungakino for the dams, how many houses do you reckon, oh, your houses and huts, it, do you reckon it, you moved? It went on like a snowball. It just got more and more, and the ministry kept throwing more jobs at me. Yeah. And, of course, uh, this is interesting to do with two-ringing, and they came to me, and we'd, we'd already shifted the buildings that we took from Murray Murray to Mangakino, those 200. We picked them up and took them to Titeko and Matahina to doing the earth dam at Matahina. Yeah. So when that was finished, we bought all those, and they all came back into other hydro projects. They said to me, Warwick, this is Peter, Peter Armstrong and Johnny Benyon, and they were the seniors. And I suppose you could say I knew these guys. 
They said, Warwick, we're looking at taking Mangakino to Turangi. We're going to set up a, a, a set up there for about a 15 or 20 year. And uh, we want you to price the houses to go. In those days, the Western Access Road wasn't there. You can thank Holyoke for that. He provided a bought a farm around there and he, actually, he wanted a road to go around the western side of the lake. So it wasn't there in those days. So there was no way the houses out of Mangakino were going to go to, to Turangi. So I said that. I said, hey, why don't you let me talk about transportable houses? You, you could build a transportable house and in a 10-year time, it would be doubled in value. And of course, they threw the book at me and said, Warwick, you go away and sort it out, which I did. And uh, I suppose you could say for the next two or three years, we, we spent carting houses to Turangi. So, and where did they come from, Warwick? Uh, basically Rotorua. There were four of those Lockwoods and Hunts and um, uh, Richard Frost and Beasley's, and then across, that was in Tauranga and Rotorua, and then there was a chap in Tamaranui, um, Braithwaite was his name, and uh, I suppose we rattled amongst those guys and said, well, this is what we need, and what I didn't realise that their prices were, were handed to the ministry, whatever they got for that, but I had the job to shift the houses. So in that period of time, I suppose you could say, I often think how many loads I would have done, but in hindsight, I would have probably taken 2,000 buildings and bits and pieces because Mangakino was was shelling out. And I know it wasn't the houses they shifted. It was all the worksheds and work, different blocks of buildings and other infantry, machinery and all sorts of stuff. So uh, you can imagine how my marriage suffered about all that because <laughs> I, I was never home. And uh, the simple thing was that we just had scheduled rates and we didn't need any paperwork and the money always came into the into my bank account every Monday and whatever. Turangi was actually a town that was delivered. It wasn't actually yeah, built. Yeah, Turangi. When I went to... <laughs> when, in all those hydro sites, there were always lupins and bull and rushes and, and rubbish. And when we got there, of course, the motor scrapers were, were ripping around and you couldn't... You got four seasons in one day. <laughs> it was either raining or dust or, you know, and here we were trying to work. And all we had was a peg in the ground with a number on it and that's where that house went. Yeah. So we had a team of... The two groups of guys at, at Turangi that bunked in there, and we had, by then the cookhouse was there, and uh, I suppose you could say we two or three years, maybe more. It, overall, I, the hydro years was about twelve years of hydro work. That was, um, and here was the ministry trying to put the screws on us about our road transport. And of course, I would hammer them on. I'd say, well, eighty, ninety percent of our work is for the bloody government. Can't you get real? <laughs> Let's sort it out. Yeah, sort it out. So, in a way, it was beneficial. We actually used that as a, as a lever in towards road transport. Yep. Mm. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, an interesting part, uh, just in the early years before I move on, was uh, how your mother sort of. You had other ideas like um, aviation or working for Caesar yeah. Roos going to Hawaii, and she kept nipping it in the bud and stopping you doing didn't you? Yeah. Well, I had a fantastic mother. She was like, a, I suppose you could say, mother mother superior. But anyhow, it must have been about the time I bought the Bedford truck. I, I biked out to a James Aviation at Rooker here. We were in Hamilton East. So, one, so anyhow, I met Aussie. Aussie James was there, and anyhow, I said, I want a job as a loader driver, and I gave him the phone number and all that, and anyhow, the, the next day at home, the phone rang, and Mum answered the phone, and, and the fellow said, oh, it's Mr James here, I want to talk to Warwick, and Mum said, well, what's that about, and she said, well, I've got a job for him uh, as a loader driver, 
And mum says, Mr. James, I think you've got the wrong number. She hung up. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Caesar Roos wanted to take you to, oh, Hon- yeah. to Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> there was another one about the same time. What happened? Caesar bought one of these LTS, like a tank landing craft that had a very shallow draft. And he bought this thing on tender in, in Honolulu. And uh, he had to have non-union guys to handle the boat. So, of course, uh, old Jack Watts, the, the manager of the yard in uh, Hamilton, he said, boy, got a job for you. The, the chief wants you to go to whatever, Honolulu, and, and help him bring this boat back. So I went all jubilant. I went home and told Mum, I'm going to Honolulu. And Mum said, no, you're not. <laughs> You, you get ah. malaria and all other sort of things. And, and of course, today's day, I'd tell mum where to go and I'd be gone anyhow. Yeah. In those days, your mother was boss. Talk to me for a moment about the the advancements in jacking houses, you know, the arrival well, of the, yeah, the Truella Jack. And... That's, that's a history thing in its own. And most of the removal guys don't really realise the impact that we had. John Chambers in Hamilton was an engineering importing company and during the war years they had a, a big plate glass window with all this tools and mechanism in the window at all discounted price because there was no imports. You could, anyhow, sitting in there was these two Truella jacks that were only about a metre high, about four foot high and uh, Dad and I were there looking at this. In fact, we, why we were there, we were looking at a building right alongside to re-block it and, of course, here we are gawking at the... And I said to Jack, we could alter those to cut that off and do that. So anyhow, he bought those two jacks and took them home. They were what they call stumping devils. And uh, it had a, a funny, like, a claw jaw on it, so cut that off and put a plate on it. And, of course, the uh, the first thing that was wrong was that we needed another half a dozen or more. Two, two wasn't going to do anything. Prior to that, if you'd lifted a building, you used a bottle jack, which was a screw jack. And, of course... You had wheelbarrow loads of packing, and of course it, it would take a week to lift the building. But we could see the vision. So this Ben Waters again from the Ministry of Transport, Ministry of Works it was, went to him and, and we said to him, Ben, we need to get an import license from these jacks that are in, a, in Trentham, Australia. The wheels set in motion and uh, half a dozen turned up, half a dozen jacks turned up, and of course they were like gold. And uh, straight away, we were lift, loading these transit huts we talk about. And, of course, four of those jacks, you'd lift the transit hut up within an hour, you'd load it. And it was absolutely outstanding. From there, of course, the restrictions and, and import licences were negative. You, you just couldn't get anywhere with the government. But fortunately, the, the ministry realised that the importance of, of the building removal industry was more or less getting into a better gear. What happened, I went across to Australia, to Trentham, Victoria, it's in Melbourne, Victoria, and I met these two American guys that were making these these Truella Jacks, and I said, hey, you guys, this is what we need. We need to do this and do this, and they've got to be five or six foot tall, not this, anyhow, straight away, they took on the, the task. The first 16 to 20 came by licence, and that took a while, and uh, eventually we got an import licence for the these Truella Jacks that we used to bring them in uh, 50 at a time, and we'd pass them on to all the different house removal guys in New Zealand. I don't think they realised the fact that what we'd done, but we'd what you call stirred the tripe, and these jacks were... For 30 years we used those jacks. They were absolutely outstanding. In fact, to give you an example, Hawkins uh, at Kinleith, they were, they were building the paper mill machines, and this particular building was needed to be lifted up about four or five feet, and it was, it was for storing the paper. 
So they had 50 of these columns and uh, the idea was to jack the roof up another four feet and uh, and the Hawkins guy said it was an opportune. So I said, yeah, we could do that. So we assembled the uh, 50 jacks, the jack at each of those columns or the vertical, working at ground level. And the, the roof was already 10 metres high or 30 feet or more. So, uh, of course, uh, it needed 50 guys. So we organised all that through the, the riggers and the fitters and our gangs. And in a, in a total day, those Truella jacks, uh, we lifted the total roof up four feet and they swung the uh, pieces of steel in that were hanging by a chain and it was only took a day, it's all done. All done. So the, the jacking system, you can imagine us with those jacks for 30 years and by that time they gravitated all through every house removal guy in New Zealand had them. Mm. And I'll give you an instance that a friend of mine in Invercargill became a friend, that was Fred Willison, working for King Removal, Building Removals. Anyhow, for some reason... We talked about what we had with the Cruellas and Fred said, is there any chance of getting some of those jacks? And I said, yeah, I said, as a matter of fact, we've got a surplus lot here. Um, if you like, I'll put 20 on, 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 a, on a little truck that I've got and I'll, I'll bring a set down. Will you do that? He said, I'll pay for them. The little international truck, I loaded the, the jacks on and with the braces and the handle and the pegs. And I said to Fred, you line up five houses for the week that I'm there and we will shift the five, one a day. Would you do that? They were doing one a week by using bottle jacks and trying to lift these damn silly houses. And of interest, it was for Richardson that's got the Hall of Fame down there. Anyhow, he was building pre-built, and uh, here I turned up with a little international with these Corilla jacks on, and of course, Fred had a, a pug-nosed Nissan with a high-deck uh, trailer, and we jacked the first one up, and... Uh, we did the five houses in a week, and the Richardson guy came to me and he said, any, any chance of getting some of those jacks? He said, they're obviously good. I said, we're actually run out of credit. We've got no more licence because I was trying to protect Fred. So uh, that really put Fred on his feet. Oh. Um, and, and then, of course, Arthur Wilcox with the hydraulic. Yeah, yeah. Well, Arthur, uh, Arthur's dad, was his father was Frank, and he was a hard case guy. He, he shouldn't have been a house mover. He was a clever bugger, and uh, he was building those big log grapples that could unload 30 tonne off a logging truck, and he would make them out of whatever he could find. That was Arthur's dad, and that was Frank. But anyhow, he loved shifting houses because there was a joke. With every house he shifted, there was a joke. And, and Arthur, of course, must have inherited some of Frank's skills because uh, Arthur inadvertently decided to build a a hydraulic jack, and he, he, what he found was two pieces of steel, the Japanese RHS in four inches and the American RHS four inches, one fitted over the top of the other. So all he had to do was to put a hydraulic ram inside all that and a, and a tap at the bottom, and, and bingo, he had a jack. And uh, Arthur, as clever as he was, he made these jacks. And, of course, I found out what he was doing, and I said, how about bringing a set down to the yard, And which he did. So uh, the jacks didn't leave the yard. I paid for them, and uh, that was really the start of, of Arthur. Uh, uh, brilliantly, he made these. They were heavy and strong, and uh, but that was the revolution. That was the finish of the 30 years of the Toronto jacks. Yeah. It, 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 it was something that we always talked about, but Arthur with his, the brains that he had, yep. and, he, and, of course, 
you always had a spare time shifting a building. You might have had a day where there's no permit, so you didn't have a job. So Arthur would turn his engineering ability and he made these checks. So he deserved the full credit. For us, the name Warwick Johnson is, is inextricably linked to the Tanahiri Yard. Yeah. And when you used to go past there, you'd look out, see if there was a truck in there or That's something right. you'd see. And But the whole Tanahiri Yard, all the way through, you, you encompass the sense of fun and adventure right. and inclusion, That's including right. people. Yeah. Like you, In the book, you say, Tamahiri House and Yard, a 10-acre playground of houses, trucks, cars, tractors, horses, goats and sheep, and the ginkgo biloba tree, of course. <laughs> yeah. But there's that, you know, you, you try and make a, a, what is a really hard job a fun adventure for everyone involved, including the kids. I, the, I was up against the fact that my wife wasn't prepared to help me. She said to me, you got yourself into it, you get yourself out of it. <laughs> so <laughs> that was it. But the, uh, you could imagine the phone that would continually ring. You you became synonymous. Uh, the It was a bit like Weetbix or Sanitarium Hill Food or the name Johnson became synonymous with shifting a building. And even today, today, people realise that, yep, that was it. So that was a generation of time. But it was also, you were also a troubleshooter for buildings in trouble. Like people used to get you when if there was a building on a lean or tipped up or collapsed foundations or like it wasn't necessarily moving it. Sometimes it was saving it. Yeah, I had a, a phone call from the police in Napier one time. They rang up and they... They said, what was I doing? I said, I'm standing here talking to you. He said, let's get serious. <laughs> he, he said, we've got an operator here with a house out on the road and the thing's starting to open up. It had been shifted before, but it hadn't been put together properly and it was all splitting and it was out on the road. And they said, could I possibly bring two truck and trailers? So next day we were in Napier with, a, with our two truck and trailers and we collapsed and undid the house and... Yep. So uh, there were things like that. The Harakee Plains house on the peak that had broken or collapsed floor and you had to repile it down? Uh, yeah, well, the, uh, every house has its own story. So uh, the different jobs that you got involved with, I, I, I had a phone call one night, 10 o'clock at night, and this fellow rang me, he identified it was me, and I said, yeah. And he said, I want to shift my house. He said, it's falling into the sea. I said, well, when you're sober in the morning at 6 o'clock, you ring me. And I... I Made out, I thought he was drunk, you see. So six o'clock in the morning, the phone rings, and he said, I'm bloody serious. He said, the porch has gone overnight, and he said, the house is going to go. He said, would you come? So this was down at Mopu, Mopu, down the coast towards New Plymouth. So we bundled everything in, and by about midday that day, we, we rescued the house off the cliff. About a hundred feet straight down to the sea, and then there was the uh, the Harzant house at Harhay with the sand, the foundations in the sand. Oh yeah, that and... was another one. That was a fellow there, Fred Harzant, and uh, he was a very clever guy making saddles for the American. Made a, a saddle for horses, but now he probably had plenty of money at the Hot Water Beach, and they built this flash house up on the top of the sand, and the whole house had about a, a twelve-inch lean. The whole thing was leaning, and of course the sand was getting blown away with the wind. So anyhow. Uh, yeah, had a concrete floor. So anyhow, the back end was all right. So uh, we put our jacks, our bottle jacks, we had 50, 20 tonne jacks, and we put them and lifted the building up. And of course, the next thing was to cut holes inside the house with the floor and shovel the sand in with the water. And of course, we just kept wheeling the sand in and, until it was all chocker. And uh, we lifted the house above the datum so that it would settle down a bit, which it did. Yeah, that was just another one. So, um, yeah, it goes on. 
the, the move that put you on the in the in the television in the in the yeah. in the living rooms of everyone in the country yeah, is, was, is Mary, the, we call it St Mary's the St Mary's and, Cathedral and prior, move prior to that. I suppose you could say I had a history of shifting churches. I used to shift an average of about seven seven churches a year throughout the North Island. I'd become known as a church guy. <laughs> so the phone rang this day and it was the guy, Dean Reimer. He was the so-called parson or minister of the Anglican Church at Parnell. I get up there and I open the trap door and it's something that happens when the experience you have. In this case, I opened the trap door and all the cobwebs and everything came out with the doors. I pulled the door open. You know what that told me? I was the only guy that opened that trap door so I knew that I, I had the key in my pocket. <laughs> so uh, I, I said to Dean Reimer, I said, we'd better have a cup of tea and talk about this. So went over to his, wherever, his parsonage, sat there and... He was an Aussie. He's the minister of Anglican or whatever. And he was telling me how they're going to dismantle the church and was I interested in you're going to set up a tower crane in the middle of Parnell Road and they'd flick it all over and rebuild it. And I said, well, why don't you shift it in one piece? And he said, he was sort of gobsmacked a bit. He said, really? You could do that? And I said, yeah. I said, um, yeah, I reckon I could shift it. So anyhow, that's with Becca Carter. Uh, they had to have an engineer because I wasn't qualified as an engineer. They they didn't know who the hell I was. So anyhow, um, I submitted a price. I think it was about one hundred and seventy-three thousand pounds, uh, and that was back in uh, 19, 1980. I'm losing track of nineteen eighty-one because nineteen eighty-two was the day we shifted it. But in nineteen eighty-one, at the tail end of, of that year was a case of starting to look the possibility of assembling the gear and of course uh, it, that, that just didn't happen straight away and uh, I went to the Huntley Power site and I got some massive big steel beams and I had all them to weld up so four of those made a beam that was 65 feet long. I did several of those and I learned how to weld and did all that. So um, yeah, so we jacked the building up, jacked it up in the air and uh, set two to move it across the road. How, how um, heavy was it? What? Well, what happened, um, Becca Carter, and you relied on, <laughs> here we go, professional guys, and they slipped up there. What they didn't realise is that the, the studs of the building were 8 by 6, and that's, that's 8 inches by 6 inches, and they were 26 feet long, and about every, every 2 to 3 feet there's what you call a stud. Anyhow, of course, there was that, and then the, the weatherboards on the outside were pit sawn because the building was 96 or 98 years old, and uh, the weatherboards were all pit sawn. So, uh, and then, of course, it came to the stage of uh, saying, well, what about the match lining? So the match lining inside was exactly the same. So here were the walls about 16 or 18 inches thick, and the, the window sills, I should have realised that the, the sill board it was big enough for you to sit on. It was about... 14 or 15 inches, and of course that was the, the width of the frame. So it added another 96 tonne to the weight of the building. So the building, they estimated it ran about 230-odd tonne or something like that. It ended up at about 378 tonne. And of course the jacking system, unbeknown to me, um, we were at maximum and uh, was quite serious. In fact, I can say I cringe to do today for the risk that we took. The, the jacks... I, I had 10 of those American Unified Jacks that were per, perfect for the job, but I needed another another set of 10, which I organised through a phone call through Robin Renshaw of Chicago. So anyhow, the jacking system arrived and we jacked the building up 
And when we put the pressure on, of course the the building was that heavy. The the valves on the on the the jacking systems they, they just squealed. They just whistled. So I rang Renshaw in America and I said, Robin, your jacking system is not working. We can't lift the building. And he said, I shouldn't tell you, but he said there's a little valve underneath such and such. If you were to twist that around a bit, he said you'll increase the pressure. So of course we increased the thing and. And of course the whistling stopped and the thing went up. So here we were with it sitting up in the air, 22 inches up in the air on 20 jacks, weighing 370 odd ton, thank you very much. And of course we had to put the plates and the rollers in to, to start the roller. So there we were, yeah. Massive. And the um, and you say the, the pine rollers compared to the Rimu yeah. rollers. Yeah, well going back into yesteryear, the veneer cores that we used to get were Rimu. And of course they were as hard, they were the centre core of a tree. When I tried to get Rimu centre core pile, like uh, rollers, which were nine inches in diameter, I couldn't get them. I ended up with pine, and the pine was soft, okay. So the idea was use put more in. But as the rollers were coming out the back, they were squashed. They were probably dented by about an inch and a half. They were virtually the back end. The, the back wall of the building weighed nearly 90 tonnes. And of course the steel was bending down, or it wasn't bending, but the, the weight was intense. And what was happening with the excavators digging out underneath, we'd stirred up the ground, made it like porridge. And of course the tail of the building was sinking back down. And, and I knew I wasn't telling anybody else, but I said, well, let's get this damn thing going. Because the more the, the ground underneath was turning to porridge, and of course the rollers were there, they were... They were getting decimated. They were we were in trouble. We yep. had the trucks and the winching power, and we winched the thing across the road. And then you took six hours. Swung it around into position. Yeah, they said it was impossible. The what the hell do you think you're doing? And uh, there were different people in the in the group of about five or six thousand people that were all walking around thinking health and safety today. <laughs> <laughs> no question of that. Yeah, there yeah. Were wire ropes and excavators and cranes and all that, and and of course the. The, the photos don't do justice to the number of people, but there were thousands of people. There would be guys that were professional and, and one or two house movers, and they said, Warwick, it's impossible. How the hell are you going to turn it? And they said, you'll never do it. And I said, well, I'm going to have to do it, because in the early days, if they were remove rollers, you could cut the rollers and you could walk the building around, which is what I intended to do. But, of course, the pine rollers, you, you hit them with it, and they just weren't going nowhere. So here I was, cliff stack, with a thing straight across the road with... No knowledge of how I was going to turn it. So, uh, and so you used hydraulic dollies to do that? Yeah, so what happened from then, uh, Trevor Jones from the, uh, the story thickens. Dale Heavy Haulage, or yeah, Dale's, the fellow carpenter was at the stage of selling up Dale's and there was a yard full of stuff. The committee trailers were there and there was a massive big turntable that was as, as big as the sitting room and it was the keystone for the sh- twisting the building. So when you put two pieces of paper, one on top of the other, you'd naturally put that in the centre and you think, well, that's where you'd turn it. It so happened, the two pieces of paper, the turntable was way down the back end of the church and that's where the pivot had to be when you twist two pieces of paper around. So yeah. I did that. And then the, the deal came with, with Carpenter for the two trailers. So the freightways, they puffed themselves up and put their banners on and made out that they were shifting the building. And they said, Warwick, as long as we can fly the flag, we don't want you can have the trailer. <laughs> so, uh, a bit more graft, so there's a bit of sort of petty cash went underneath the whatever. Yeah. And the Freightway Dales guys, they were neat, neat guys, there's photos of some of them there. Yeah. They gave us a hand for a few days while we twisted it around. And, 
and we put every wheel at the centre to that turntable was all at 90 degrees of that. Now, here's an interesting thing. The, the whiskers that we made at the yard were longer than the width of the building, so they're stuck out either side, and there was a row of about seven or eight sticking out, and, and of course, we had guys with a laser level and the engineers telling us that we were going to buckle their building and all that, so that here were these these steel beams, so what happened? So the whiskers are the steel beams, the runners under the building. Yeah, they were yeah. massive. They were, were 12 inches square. They were massive. And they would come from the Huntley power side, and, and I put four of those welded together. And, of course, the welder guy that showed me how to do it, he said the welding will be stronger than the steel. Yeah. So I felt happy about that. So then to keep the building in line, what I did is the, the beam that will say that that end and the beam at the other end, I put a string line and built a packing and put a string line over that. And then when you go to the beach and you make a sandcastle, so I made a sandcastle on each of those beams and I stuck a little pin in it, that, that that string line was there. So the string line was over the top of that pin and as we were winching, you could keep that, the, we had about seven winches twisting it around, but the... The simplicity of it and how clever I was, with the I kept the building with that the string line with that pin there. You could say that that was it. That was it. And, and the guys walking around, these engineers and Becker Carter and all the clever buggers. And um, here I was, and that was my magic. Being able to keep the building in, in a straight line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it, 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 you can probably say <laughs> that experience is a great teacher, and there's no shortage of that in our type of industry and, and most house removal guys are very clever and don't underestimate them. Well look at um look at lowering big tanks using blocks of ice. Looking to lowering big tanks using blocks of ice. Yeah. That was the that was the oil tanks. Yeah, was the, yeah that was the shell oil in uh, in Mount Monganui. And for some reason I got a call to would I possibly lift the tank and of course I'd never done one but I got them to brace the inside and whatever. So we put our 60-odd jacks right round with a unified jack, and we lifted it up four feet, put it on pig's tie so they could build a new base or whatever they did, and they tar-sealed it all. And, of course, the day come to let it down, and the superintendent said, Warwick, you, you're just not going to dig the, my bloody tar-seal up. And I said, no, 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 it's all right. I've got it sorted out. <clears throat> and I knew that the second tank, they were mumbling about that, and I said, well, how about we do a deal with the two tanks together, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do. So, yeah, okay, righto. So anyhow, <clears throat> I said, I'm going to use blocks of ice, and I had a cool store guy down the road with 60 apple boxes with plastic bags, and he'd made a half-ton truckload of ice box. so later in the day, the little truck turned up with all these ice blocks about the size of an apple box. We put all them around the around the tank, took our jacks away, because lowered it down, and these ice blocks were about, in the old language, 14 inches high, maybe like that, a bit higher. Anyhow, took our jacks away, and of course, you'd say, well, the whole thing's going to crunch and crap to the ground, well, it didn't go like that. So here we were sitting, wondering what was going to happen, so I said to one of my guys, you go around that way, and I'll go this way, so you just tapped it with a sledgehammer, and it would shatter like crystal. So it took about four hours for the, for the ice to melt. So here he is on the phone to England to Shell Oil, and he said, believe it or not, they're bloody stupid Kiwi guys. He said, they've let my tank down on blocks of ice. <laughs> and how heavy was the tank? Yeah. Oh, it, was a, it would be over 120 tonne, maybe more. No, no, we didn't know, didn't, didn't monitor the weight. But anyhow, we did the second tank the same, and, and then from then I did another six or seven in Napier down at Nelson with my son Grant. 
he went down there and did those with the uh, with the dollies that yeah. Peterkin did. Mm. Yeah, cool. interesting. So the book's called uh, Prime Mover: The Remarkable Life of Warwick Johnson. It's we we've barely touched on the stories that are in it, and uh, we're not going to tell you them all because you're going to have to go on to uh, uh, NewZealandTrucking.co.nz the shop and buy yourself your own copy. It is a remarkable piece of New Zealand. Uh, transport history uh, written by a remarkable man and um, how old are you today Warwick? I'm, I'm 88 in fact I keep having adding that up but I reckon I'm 88 so I'm ticking on. Yep and it's sharp as a tack. Well I'm all right my head's all right that's on my shoulders but from the shoulders down I'm what you call bucket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I never thought that would happen. Dad used to say you wait until you get to my age boy. This is the Keep On Moving podcast with New Zealand Trucking Media. Back to our feature interview shortly with Dave McCoy and the great Warwick Johnson. Just a reminder, stick around. Lots more trucks to come. We talk, in fact, classic trucks. We find out what's happening in Aussie and Great Britain, plus more as well. Okay, the book is called Prime Mover, The Remarkable Life of uh, Warwick Johnson. And, and look, to be fair, we've barely touched on... The stories that are in the book, there's a fantastic story about Warwick's encounter with a real-life gangster and how he, how he got the better of, um, of him. And um, Warwick himself sitting here says the book itself is probably 10% of his life stories that he, <laughs> that he could have put in. It could have been the size of a phone book. Remarkable snapshot of, of, of an amazing man's um, career in, in the building removal game and, and he's here, right here with me now and Warwick I want to move now on to uh, we're a trucking magazine first and foremost and I want to move on to trucks and trailers and in the book you actually say that your love of trailer design and building was so great that you actually you almost yeah. you almost ditch house moving for trailer design yeah I, I take you back in my life the war years had just concluded and uh, impact was to have a trailer for shifting these transit camps and Dad was talking to an engineer that would build the chassis, and uh, the trailer had to be designed. It was over length, and uh, it wasn't allowed to have a deck on it because we weren't allowed to carry cement or timber, or, so it was just an open frame. The front axle was out of a Morris commercial bus uh, from the Huntley, and the back end was an axle that Jack Tidd found with some six-stud Ford hubs, and the brakes were only two inches, and uh, they were, was all hydraulic. The only time the brakes worked was the day of the vehicle inspector when he turned up, so we'd screw the valves up with a screwdriver and, of course, it skid the wheels, no trouble. So that was that. Was that. The day he did the, the warranty, he sat on the back with a, a gallon tin of yellow paint and I said, what's that for? And uh, he said, I'm going to tip it on the tyre when you go up round the corner up there. And I said to Dad, make sure you go on the other side of the road when you go round the corner because the trailer's going to cut across the grass. So when he got round the corner, the fellow was hanging onto the trailer for grim death because Dad thought he had a horse and cart. So anyhow, the yellow paint was on the road. He said to Dad, it, it actually tracks brilliant. But he didn't know that the front part of the track was on the other side of the road. <laughs> so that was that. That was the start of it. And, uh, of course, I was only about 16 or 17. And uh, I think that at a younger age, I was sharper. Um, my dad was more interested in a, a horse and cart and a sledge or a konaki. And uh, we go back beyond that to, to Pop, that was Dad's father-in-law or Mum's father, George Jack. And he made his wheels, he made them out of, out of wood. And there was steel rim with wood put in the middle. Then he'd drill a hole in the middle and set fire to the centre to get it honed out to about a, a five-inch cone so a stub axle would, would fit on it. And the only 
lubrication they had was a, a four-gallon tin of water that you had to walk alongside to, to tip it on the hub so it didn't catch on fire. The trailer that Dad built was done out of m mostly second-hand stuff. The Chev truck, of course, was only a, a four, six-ton Chev, so it was blessed with the job of, of handing the trailer, which it did. I suppose you could say we put up with that. I did, from my point of view. Um, that was 1948. And during the, uh, during the 50s, the pressure where we needed a, a bigger platform trailer, we were always having to shift buildings with, with, say, four trucks, two going forward and two going back. So the, the, a 40-foot chassis was what we needed, which we got permission to build. And uh, actually Hawkins built the, the steel frame and was 9 foot 6 by 40 feet and Tids did the wheel assembly. So that was the start of it. The, um, prior to that, we used the dollies that Tid had, and we put them alongside that trailer, and we took 20 houses up to Kopoka, to the coal mine. That was when they were building the Murimuri power station. And these wobbly wheel dollies would sit alongside the trailer, and I had the, the Bedford, SB Bedford bus chassis with a two-speed diff, and the truck was uh, 300 cubic inch, about 120 horsepower. Of course, that was the tractor. The dollies were there, we bolted them alongside, but there was no brakes and no air, no nothing. The vacuum two-inch thing to the trailer was insignificant. So eventually the, uh, the day came when we used those dollies in a, in a steel frame, made a trailer. So uh, when I took over in 1957-58, of course, that trailer was the keystone to what we were doing. Take you further along the trail, the transport in general... That was Ian Stevenson and Bill Bopp. They were just two young fellas that started a, a workshop in Kent Street in Frankton. And uh, I said to them, I said, Ian, uh, I want to build a couple of trailers. And uh, I said, the loads we seem to do are about 36, 38, 40 feet. So to keep within the law, we built a trailer. We actually built two trailers that were 34 feet long, only by 8 foot wide. So I'm talking an imperial measurement. And, of course, they were... 825 20 tyres, second hand, of interest. They were Bedford hubs, you couldn't buy, you couldn't buy uh, probably certified axles. The, the front axles, <coughs> normally you'd target a 15 inch axle by buying uh, an American low loader trailer. You tip it upside down and you'd get the, uh, the 15 inch wheels and hubs out of it. So transport in general, they said to me, well, hey Warwick, we can't get those, so what we did, we got some three-ton Bedford hubs that were only 16-inch, so we had 825 16-inch hubs, and it was totally unethical to, to use them, but that was really the best we could, so they had no brakes, and um, the ministry never picked up on the fact that they were only a certain tear, and they really weren't strong enough, but they did the job, and what Ian and... Ian and uh, Bill did there was fantastic and they were vacuum so that was okay so the 40 footer was vacuum of course those hydro houses out of, out of Mary Mary were all done on those sort of trailers and uh, we progressed through that into the uh, generation of change and in that time my dad actually copied the 40 foot trailer and he had a, a similar one built and with a tid walking back end and uh, had a J6 Bedford that he used to do it and he endeavoured to try and shift the house from Hamilton to Toorangi, and it took him 17 hours, so uh, that was the end of that. He only did one, that was the end of it. The advent of trailers, uh, you, you're probably conscious of what's the change. By chance, one day, this 
Chetamalo guy, or Manu Tuanui was his background. He came into my yard at Tamahiri. He said, I believe that you could be interested in a trailer. I knew of him as, a, as he had New Zealand arc welders in Rotorua, and his main job was building logging trailers with, the, uh, with arc, arc welding out on the sand and massive big beams, and he did a trailer for our local opposition, Dick Devandia, and I said, well, similar to that, but... So anyhow, I drew on the sand with a stick what I said to Manu, and he, so I disappeared to his yard, and he was Peterkin in a, in a caravan. He'd obviously hadn't been there long, and um, Manu said, there's a young fellow over there in the caravan, you go and talk to him. So I did. You might say that uh, Neil and I became very close friends straight away, and uh, you could probably say for me, I knew what I wanted, so on the, in the, in the, with a stick in the sand, you draw on the sand what you wanted, and uh, Neil being an engineer, he could pick up on the thoughts, and uh, uh, that's really how it all started. It had to be, I said to, to Neil, it wants to be hydraulic, and the ministry wouldn't listen, and they said it had to have springs, and the history of springs, it, it's suicide, because the springs would collapse on one side and expand on the other, so if you wanted to tip a house off, have a chassis with springs. In the oh, early days, okay. yeah, yeah. we used to wire the, the chassis down with a number eight wire and a block of wood and we'd screw the chassis down to the axle. And uh, that's how we got away with it. We could hold the balance by being rigid. So anyhow, Peterkin uh, got to work and he built the trailer. All to done without a permit, without any authority. The ministry weren't involved. It became a trombone. And, uh, of course, it was 825 tyres with the, the three axles all joined together at the back with a a floating bogey. The time came uh, some months later, the, I was at the testing station at Rotorua and the uh, vehicle inspector said, uh, your idea of the hydraulic trailer, what do you think about it? And I said, well, we've actually built one, it goes good, it goes to, goes to Turing every night, it's got, <laughs> got a house on it, you want to come around and have a look? So I chucked him in the car and away we get, he gets there and of course here it is sitting in the yard with a house on it. So... Uh, it didn't say too much. He walked all around it, and it had a Wankel motor up on the front on the gooseneck, and uh, self uh, self-controlled. So I started up and I lifted it up and did all this and did all that. And he said, "Well, um, how come? You know?" He said, "You're not an engineer." I said, it "Didn't have to be." I said, "I had a fellow Peterkin." I said, "He's done the structural work." He said, "Well, how did you certify it?" I said, "Well, the d all I did, I took the number plate off that trailer and put it on there." And I said, "We've been going to Turangi for six months." <laughs> and I said, "You fellas weren't interested." So I said, "We've proven a point." And I said, "The, the hydraulic—you can throw the springs out the window." I said, "Your future trailers should be hydraulic, okay?" So you could say that that was the change in generation of—we'll call it trailer design. And Neil, I, I give him full credit for what he's done, and we did several trailers. And I've sat with him many a time at night time with a drawing board and we'd spend all night until 7am in the morning and the drawings would be really complete <clears throat> and the fellas would turn up and uh, he'd be saying, well, we've got a job. And I'd say to Neil, you've got more than the job. I said, that, what you've just drawn is perfect. I said, what we'll do, I said, we'll build two, not one, we'll build two. So believe it or not, we'd build two. And the second trailer, we'd, we'd bundle it on a ship and send it to Australia because he had a, a guide in uh, Surface Paradise that was ex-Rotorua and he was a friend of Neil's, so he was able to 
send the trailer to him, and he had it in his yard, and of course the, the minute the Aussies saw a hydraulic chassis, of course they panicked that we were going to go there and start up an opposition, so there was skin and hair flying there for a little while. Mm. So uh, really, really, that's really what happened, and uh, of course trial and error, rather than have money in the bank, you were better to build another trailer and improve on what you've already done. And uh, the interesting story came as progress. We went from vacuum to air. So when a trailer was designed and built with full air, the trucks we had were still on vacuum. So the history unfolds. When we loaded the, the, the building with a truck with a, the, was a full air trailer, and of course my truck was vacuum, so uh, unbeknown to the ministry or other people that were involved, we used to have a piece of melthoid and we'd put it in the Namco fitting. So I'd drive the load with no brakes and uh, I'd have brakes on the truck, but the trailer was floating. So uh, <laughs> I'd, go, I'd go from wherever to Tuurangi with a 30-odd with a ton house on with no brakes. So uh, I was able to do that. Never had an issue? Never, not an issue, no. Especially going downhill, that was exciting. Mm. <laughs> <coughs> so the... The evolution, the change, and of course, it snowballed from there. And of course, people, opposition people could see what we'd done, and they tried to copy. One or two, there was a chappie in Levin, made a trailer, an engineering fellow, and he made a very, very good job, very clever. The trombone trailer, he made it so good that when we had it after a week or two on the ground, on the road with the grit and the sand, you couldn't open the trombone because the grit had got between the two pieces of steel and it wouldn't open out. So there's another learning point that to make a trombone you had to have a, a bit of a cavity there too so that the, uh, all your grip that you inhibited, I don't know where it ended up, but we didn't own it for very much longer. And of course Neil went on to do wonderful things in his career. Oh, Neil was a fantastic just a, guy. The, just uh, one of the icons <coughs> of the industry, really. He, he's got a brain on him like a, I can't answer the, the fact that he's so clever, but I think it's a going back again to his younger years when he was, he apparently grew up on, as an apprenticeship on a ship, and then he got a job with the Mets, and whether it was in down at um, Levin or down that way somewhere, I don't know. But when he came to Manu uh, in Rotorua, of course Manu had him in a trailer uh, caravan with a drawing board, that was all there was to it. But poor old Manu, he was an incredible guy and he was in terrible debt. And he actually said to me, he said, Warwick, he said, you can have this business, I don't want it. And over the years, in the succeeding years, Warwick Johnson House Removals, <laughs> you, had, you had both MTE and, and TRT gear? Yes, I, uh, I had a lot to do with, with TRT. I suppose it goes back to my dad, and uh, dad and Jack Tid were good friends, and of course yeah. the, uh, Tid always did a wonderful job. Um, there were opportunities that he did over the years for us, and uh, naturally I went to him, and, uh, and then there was another young fellow that broke away from uh, uh, Transport and General Robin Radcliffe, and uh, I gave Robin the chance to build a trailer, because by that time Neil had sold his, or Demets had taken over Neil in, in Rotorua and paid Neil a dollar or two and uh, regretfully Neil moved away from the trailer creation. That, that was a, a milestone that shouldn't have happened. But the, um, so Radcliffe got involved and uh, the experiences you have are such that certain things you know that, that are good and some things that are bad and the, the gooseneck creation was to me, important, and uh, rather than just weld two bits of steel, you had to have a profile cut, and the profile was such that it was immensely strong. Swaps had a trailer some years before that, and the whole thing collapsed with the bulldozer on it, 
and the front part of the trailer dug into the ground and the bulldozer dislodged. So uh, history repeats itself. So Robin um, probably, he built what I call Mark 1 and Mark 2 and uh, of course I wasn't interested until it got to the stage we had Mark 3 and by that time things were getting better and uh, he built a, the first trailer for me that was good and uh, it was a three axle close close axle, articulated, around about a, a 40 foot deck, perhaps a bit longer, tromboned out quite a bit. There were things that happened in that, of course being uh, air, air brakes and all that sort of thing, then the, uh, we got to the, the hydraulics dissolved and, and came to the, uh, the discs, the, instead of the hydraulic brakes, it became discs. So uh, once we had the, uh, everybody said that wouldn't work, it would get all the grip. But the, uh, the discs, as a matter of fact, they're, they're, they're what every truck's got them today. An interesting thing that happened, and uh, this is another thing that changes your life. To get an over-dimensional permit, in those days we, we had the fax machine, and the early days of the Ministry of Transport, to get a permit was just a horrendous. You had to go there with a cap in hand and wait for your, the guy to sign the permit, and it, it, it created a problem to get a permit. And... Uh, and of course, as progress went on, they set up a central thing in Palmerston North for doing our, our permits. And I used to draw a drawing showing the illustration of the load and the weight and how the axle weights would be on the axle. And this particular day, I said to the girl down there, I said that I need an overweight on that particular drawing that I've sent you. And she said, Mr. Johnson, she said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. But she said, if you had that axle out at 2.4, she said, I would give you the extra ton. I said, well, that's not going to happen overnight. I said, honey, give us the, the overweight for this one. And I said, I promise you, here and now, we'll design a trailer with a 2.4 spacing. You could probably say that's how it all started. It, little did that lady know how she changed the input on the hydraulic house trailer. Right. Mm -hmm. Interesting, eh? Yeah, just like that. Just like that, yeah. And, uh, because then I was able to... To draw to scale yep. the trailer with a 2.4, 2.4. Yep. You knew what you had to build to get your in, permit. In that case, I said to Robin, there's a way to do that because in the early days, to get it onto soft sand and in the mud, we'd use corrugated iron and it would fold up and curl up around all your, your brake fittings and light fittings and it was just an absolute disaster. So in the designing of the trailer and getting out to 2.4, we're able to put what we call a skid pan underneath the trailer. Yes. So the skid pan, if you were successful, you left the trailer down low, but the skid pan would slide you through the mud. Yeah. So uh, that that became a, a fact. Let's head to the front of the trailer at what's, and uh, what's hooked to the front of it. When uh, Peterkin built the Tui trailer, of course, the, the uh, turntable that we had on the truck, this is interesting, actually. The, I bought a, a 4 by 2 Mercedes truck, and we were going to use it on that trailer, and the first day I put it under there, it was absolutely hopeless, so I, I gave that truck away to Taylor and Cully, and they gave me a, an international, an R190, was an R200 with a, an 8V53 Detroit, and of course the, uh, the gooseneck was only made long enough to take for a short 4 by 2 So straight away we had to shift the turntable, and we put the turntable some 8 or 9 inches back behind the centre line. If you're a truckie and reading the, ins the instructions of how your turntable was, 
it to be so many whatever, whatever, and as a forward length. And here we were with a turntable about eight inches behind the centre line. <laughs> and you know, the ministry never, ever, ever picked that up. But it was brilliant because it took the front axle off the ground. And we're in soft ground with a bit of power. All the weight was on the back end, so we had ultimate traction. So, and was that a good machine, that truck? So, yeah, the, the truck was a fantastic truck. So what it, sort of gearbox in that truck? Oh, uh, it had a five-speed with a four-speed. And, uh, of course... Oh, you could probably say I was a professional driver. I could drive it without using the clutch. I could do all sorts of things. So for three years, from 1971 through that time, I drove that truck and we had a yard in Rotorua, Hamilton and Auckland and I'd line up Rotorua with five houses in that week and five in Hamilton, five in Auckland, back to Hamilton for five. So I did that for three years and that trailer became a legend on the highway because it was hydraulic. And there's a, a bit of a hard case story attached to that. I was coming out of Auckland one night, and I don't know how I came by. I had a whole heap of, of steel, angle-on steel, that was about 40 feet long, and I think it was quite heavy. And the cop picked me up and took me to the Otahu way station, and it was coming on daybreak. It was a bit foggy. I drove up the ramp, and uh, me being smart, the West Coast mirrors, I was able to keep the driver's side out on the grass and the other side was on the waybridge. So when the, the cop turned on the lights and tapped the scale on the waybridge, he kept tapping it to think that, he said, you know, he said, I, I'm sure it's heavier than that. But what he didn't know is he only had half the trailer because the other half was on the grass. <laughs> so after he tapped all that, I said, I think I better get going, I'm OK. So I drove off and left him to it. Hmm. Because there was always a bit of a... There was a so bit you of, only got half the weight, the other half was on the grass. Yeah, exactly. And there's, like, there's all sort of, I don't know, like good-humoured <laughs> cat-and-mouse shenanigans with, 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 in those days, wasn't there, with, you know? Oh, it's true. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that I put it down to the fact that because you had to deal with the ministry so much and the permits and all that consternation of time, it was absolutely brutal to try and get permits. And the, the senior traffic police guys... Um, They'd have their office girl in tears trying to give me a permit and he'd be there going away for a two-hour lunch break and he wouldn't have the permit signed. And taking a house to, say, Auckland, you or used to go around to the North Shore, to Albany, you had to get a permit from Hamilton and one from Papakura, one from Mount Roskill where Keith Hay was because he was difficult. And then we'd go around to... Uh, uh, down to the... round onto Albany to... Um, uh, trying to think where it was. But anyhow, the, so you had three or four lots of permits that you had to get. And, of course, when you had different cops that would come on through the night, um, of course, you had this piece of paper with all these signatures on it, and it was just a nightmare. What a nightmare. Oh, absolute. The international brand was a good brand for oh, you? A fantastic truck. It was an R200 X, X Air Force, and it had a, an 8V53, it was 200 and... 37 horsepower, which was, in those days, we never had horsepower. The, uh, you know, the, your trucks, the, the 6V53 Detroits that we had, they were only 195 horsepower. We ended up with Ross Todd with those when we changed from, we had a petrol to diesel. Ross Todd did two, three, four, about five of those for me. And then we set up our own workshop in Rotorua and... Uh, we used to buy the trucks from Forest Products for £2,000, I suppose it was, maybe dollars, and we'd get rid of the back end for that sort of money. So we'd end up with a cab and a chassis, and uh, and then we'd buy four Detroits in one go from Clyde Engineering, and uh, we'd set two to, to build these trucks. And uh, 
what happened, the Inland Revenue uh, got a bit smart and uh, they started pushing me a little bit. So they came to our yard in Rotorua and uh, they asked all sorts of questions that you could well understand. And what was this and what was that? And of course I had an answer for all of them. And uh, as the, the token that most truckies have got is what you call R&M. So that was repairs and maintenance. So I bluffed the guy with all the R&M and all the old motors that were, were laying there, but he didn't realise that we were, were actually building a new truck out of, out of whatever. And, uh, and, of course, I bought the million-mile diffs off, off TIDS, and yep. uh, we built a magic truck. The name Warwick Johnson House Removals is sort of in, in many ways, again, again, touching on for people sort of in my era... Um, there's two big R700 Max that suddenly... So how did the Max come about? It goes back to 1973. I'd, I'd waltz on a bit, but we went to Australia to a truck show in, in, in there, and we went to a place called Toowoomba, and there was a guy at Toowoomba that had a fleet of 400-odd trucks, and in that workshop he was building the Leader, which is a truck that was homemade, you might say, with a cat motor and was a, a, a very, very strong truck. In, in, the, in the days... 1973, nobody had any horsepower. The, the little R600 Mac was 237 horsepower. That was maximum. And these Caterpillar motors that they were doing was probably about the same. But this Cyril guy introduced us to this and that, and uh, there was something like 30 or 40 of us there. And it was like a banquet meal with all the silver, and the, the meal was fantastic. And the, the guy was sure that we were going to buy some of his leader trucks. Would, but the uh, tucked in the corner was an R600 Mac from America, and it was sitting down in the dust, and one of us said, what's, what's that truck doing down there? I suppose you could say to me, in my early days as a, a young fella carting the houses to Puriora, the Mac trucks they had in there were, were about 10 foot wide, and they didn't have a cab, but they were ex-military, and those two Mac trucks they had carting the logs gave me the history that if it was a Mac truck, it was going to be good. So anyhow, Ron Carpenter was there, and this is history. Um, Ron told me in later years that there was, out of, say, 40 or 50 of us, half of us that day signed up for an R600 Mac. So that put motor truck all on the business, of, and they imported this truck. I think it was $47,000 by then, 1973. So that was all right. So come time, and... Uh, Ron Carpenter got cracking and these, uh, he started assembling trucks from, directly from the States. And of course the horsepower had gone up into uh, 300, 375. And the, uh, I went down there, I thought, well, I'm going to have a look at these Macs. So I had some money in my pocket and I thought, well, I'll at least get one. But when I got there, the, the guy that was doing the assembly work, I said, oh, you can walk through the workshop. No health and safety in those days. Anyhow, he said, there's two of those two Macs away over there parked up. He said, they've been there for a, a fair time. He said, nobody wants them. He said, they've got 44s. Well, I knew what he was talking about. The 44s are the, the size of the diff. And most truckies only wanted 39 because it was the extra weight, and weight was a problem. But for house removal, we never overweighted. The house is not heavy. But anyhow, I said, well, I'd be interested in one of those. So anyhow, the conversation went on. Well, he ended up with the, the price at 93000 so in the delay and the discussion, the other one, the other truck was shivering and sitting there on its own. And I said, well, how about the other one? Can I have that too? So we negotiated a deal that was better than 93000 So I ended up with two Mack trucks, and they were 375 Absolutely brilliant. And we thought we were the king of the road, which we probably were at the time. 
So they were like 375 V8s? Yeah, V8s. Yeah, yeah. and they, what, they have the old 12-speed maxi-torque yeah, in them? Yeah, they, were, yeah, they, were, they weren't favourable to the average truckie. They had a, a heating problem to do with the V8 part of the fact of it, but the fact that from a house removal point of view, we might only be three or four hours and we'd park up and the motor we weren't expecting to do 24 hours around the clock. Yeah, yeah. But those two trucks were good for you? Oh, we had them. <laughs> the biggest mistake I made when I had them, I had them for 21 years. When I had them for 10 years, I should have got rid of them and got two new ones. But they were so reliable and regular, they were fantastic and you could hook a bulldozer on and pull the hell out of them or the you know, front bumpers were strong enough to do what you wanted. You couldn't kill them. They were absolutely outstanding, and I, in in that time I had several Macs, and uh, I think I've added up, I've had about 10 of them in my time. Oh, and they're all been good trucks to you? Oh, fantastic. They were outstanding. Another couple of trucks that I want to talk to you about, and I've had a couple of people who knew I was coming to talk to you, uh, ask me to ask about the uh, Nissan Diesel TW52As. Oh, yeah. how, how were they to you? Were they that good happened, truck? That happened... Uh, it was round about 19, 1984, and again, a group of us went to Japan, and the idea was that I was interested in a, in a Nissan truck. The Nissan people actually shouted us a deal. So uh, we go there, and yes, here's the Nissan here. I want one of those. I want two of them. So I bought two of them, and uh, they were they were six by four. I actually wanted a six by six, and they had the six by six on the, 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 the chain line building them, but they were all going to Africa. And uh, they wouldn't talk to me about a, a six-wheel drive, so I got a, I got the Nissans as they were. Um, I could say to you now, those Nissans were absolutely brilliant. They were, the you put the two trucks side by side, because we had the, we had a lot of trucks with winches on. We probably had about ten internationals and other trucks with winches, and we set these two Nissans up with winches and whatever. And uh, if you were stuck in the mud with a 190 with a with the mud, the Nissans would actually walk past them in the mud. Now, whatever magic was in the back end of those Nissans, I'll, I'll never know. But um, they were just an outstanding truck. And they were, what, 350 yeah, horse or yeah, 350? 330 horsepower. 330 horsepower. And they were, had a road ranger gearbox. If you never used a road ranger and used to the, the twin stick, you had a bit of a problem. Yeah. You had to learn to whatever. Yeah. But uh, it was, they were all right. They, um, they, uh, I tried to give them to my guys that worked for me on a, a labour-only basis, but they didn't realise the, the gem that I was trying to do for them. And I ended up with one of them out of the scrap heap, and uh, I rebuilt it and spent a fortune on it. And um, the history of that truck has gone to uh, Fiji, and uh, I put a new cab on it, and uh, I virtually gave it away. Really interested in the holistic vehicle, the truck, the trailer, and the engineering well, of both. My wife said, you're married to your bloody truck. She didn't want to be very happy about me, and <laughs> it caused a few problems, I might say. I never realised the, uh, the importance of it, but people used to always say, Warwick, listen, hey, you've got to write a book. I took on board the opportunity to write a book, and uh, that's how it happened. And I never, ever believed that it was going to be history. And uh, I can boast to you now that 70 years, 1948 to 1988, if you add that up, that's quite a few years. My brain is so ticket away like talking to you now, and I wish I had another 30 years, I'd, I'd sort of do something more about it. But the, uh, the trucking industry is on a paramount of fantastic opportunities. And where I live here now, T-Rail, they, they come through the town with 50 tonne on, they don't even change gear. 
up and over and through the hill and underneath the subway and the golem. Warwick, you're very proud of your involvement in the New Zealand Heavy Haulage Association. Tell us how that all got started. That was an interesting story because being Peterkin and being me, and uh, I suppose you could say that the house removal industry badly needed an organisation. We badly needed um, a representation within within the unit. So anyhow... Why can't I have you haulage? This goes back to George Scott and Scotty. And I said to him, how about I come with you to your Wairaki, to your AGM for your heavy haulage? And so me being me, I ended up with Scotty and I'm sitting there with all these guys all smartly dressed with their ties and all the, they had a pretty unique sort of an outfit that was like a like the gentleman's club. And here I was just in an old pair of clothes with no tie on, <laughs> sitting there <laughs> listening to what they're going on about. And I, I actually said that because I'd been to America and I'd witnessed the heavy haulage in America, it's all done by building removal people because they're clever, must I say. So anyhow, I was able to tell these guys that anything over three or four metres wide, they couldn't handle it, they were scared of it. And uh, I said, well, why don't we we sort of bring our house removal guys and we could create a, a better association, we could do something about it. Richard Hyde, he was quite a snappy little fella and... Uh, he sort of chiselled me a bit, and uh, Trevor Jones was down the other end of the room, and, and they were arguing about things, and uh, um, in the end I sort of won the day, and uh, they said, well, in that case we're going to have to have a logo, and I said, so there again, <laughs> these two guys were arguing whether it was a Kenworth or a Mac or a, or a Peterbilt, and I said, well, you don't need that, all you need is a, is a, is a trailer, a house removal trailer. And one of them said, well, you're a smart bugger. I said, I know that. So anyhow, they put it to me. They said, the next meeting you can come, but bring your, your ideas. So, of course, I did that. And what they didn't know, that working for me was uh, Robin. Uh, his wife was a, was a graphic artist for the Waikato Times. Anyhow, I said to Robin, how about we talk to your wife about this is what I want to do. We're going to want to put this. This is how we want to do it. So I drew it out. So she came up and we sort of sat down side by side and the, the deal came with this hydraulic trailer. And What you've got to do now, you've done such a good job, let's put a bit of red on it like lipstick because it's all female-oriented, so the, the, the drawing's got red on the, on, which is the lipstick. I tabled it at the next meeting and, of course, uh, it was unanimous, it was uh, accepted. I suppose I stirred the, the tripe in that day and they say that within probably the next 12 months we had a membership equal to way beyond these five or seven guys that were smartly dressed, a, a whole heap of hobo house removal guys all sitting around a room where they, we were setting up a, a, a deal between us. And uh, I told them, I said, you guys will melt away into the system, which did happen. And uh, consequently, we've got a, a fantastic membership with the New Zealand Heavy Haulage. And uh, I'm pretty proud of that. Proceeds of the book are going to St John's? That's right. I've been talking to my heavenly father and he doesn't want me to take a heap of money with me. So I've got a dollar or two to one side and my idea to support St John's. And I think on the highway today, the St John's people struggle to survive. The fire department have got fire and rescue written on their vehicles. What St John's gets 72% from the crazy government and uh, they've got to inherit the other by donations for people. So within my book, I've... Uh, I've dedicated an ambulance and uh, that's going to be part of me. I'm very happy about that. So that's another uh, fantastic reason to grab yourself a copy of the book, that the proceeds uh, of, of what the book makes will go to, to, to really saving lives through, through the St John's. 
Yeah, the, um, yeah the, the people of St John's, a lot of those people are volunteers. And today, today, they've got ambulances parked up when they haven't got the staff. Yeah. And the volunteers are not being paid. The stupid government of today don't recognise they're spending it on silly damn things building, like they try to build that cycle track underneath the Harbour Bridge. And, but if they could support St John's, and even if they gave them another 10%, so you're also um, you're also a great believer, and nowadays you don't think that young young people can get close enough to the action. Uh, yeah, I, I I feel sorry for them. I, the, the industry's got to take. I don't care who you are. We've got to take on board the young people. And look at me at my age when I was 15, 16. I was driving a Chev truck with a load of sand on it. That the traffic cop of the day, which was the local council, for two years he said, I've been watching you, but I never had an accident, I've never ever had an accident. The young people of today have got to have a chance, they've got to walk in and lean, they're not allowed to even travel in the truck and learn how to, how to have, handle horsepower, how to take your foot off the brake and how to drive without using your brakes, and, you know, and, and even in the building industry it's the same, and the younger people today, we've got to give them a chance. And uh, if we don't, already we're short of truck drivers. They, they've got, you go to some of the local carriers and you, you say, well, what's the, all those 10 or 12 trucks? Oh, we haven't got any drivers. After reading the book and, and going through it and, and it, what I took out of the book is, uh, you, you know, you say in the book that, uh, you know, there was a little bit of ego on your part for, for the things that you took on, you know, the, and did it so humbly. Like, you always involved people and you, also, you always made it a venture. Yeah, I, I think that. I think I've ended up with enough money to have my own house, but other than that, forget it. I, I think it goes right back to my grandfather and I watched him and he suffered terribly and he got diabetes and lost his eyesight. In fact, he lost his eyesight. He was still shifting houses. And I felt for him, and I, I think I used that inference with Pop, that whatever we did in our life with men and people that worked for you, they had to be equal. We all had to be shared the same impact. Of we go back to those years when I, I probably first started on my own. I couldn't have done it on my own, and I had three or four guys. We're all the same age. We all thought the same. We all, we all shared each other's time. They all got paid. Um, I never had any money. I was always an overdraft. I was dedicated in the industry of trying to improve the welfare. When you look at it now and see the, the activity of the house movers throughout New Zealand, I suppose you could say I sowed the seed way back and uh, I never realised that what we were doing was entering into the book of history, like the time I went down to Fred Willis and, and gave him a, a set of jacks and I said we're going to shift the house five houses, one each day, and how the opposition came along and I sort of stalled them because I wanted to help Fred and make sure that it was a success. And by being a success, it radiated from him and it bellowed its way back up through the, the South Island. And, uh, yeah, it, it goes on, yeah. I'm very proud of what we've done. What happened to Warwick Johnson House Removals in the end? Did you, did, did you sell out? or? It, it, I, I still own the company. I tried to dissolve it. My accountant said, no, no, I've given Diane the reins and she takes away any bills and debts because I don't understand the www.co and all my checkbooks are still in the drawer. You can have all them. Yeah. Well, I've given the company to Diane. She'd become a shareholder or a director. And, and my passing, which will be in a day or two. Here's an interesting thing. I've even down in the yard in my office here, I've even got my own coffin leaning up against the wall. <laughs> I've saved probably about $10,000 on having a coffin built. So, uh, and the company paid for that. 
Warwick Johnson, it's been an absolute pleasure to sit here this afternoon for a couple of hours and uh, yeah. promote the book and share the stories. Uh, the book, as we've said, is called Prime Mover, The Remarkable Life of Warwick Johnson. It's an absolute must-read if you're a New Zealand uh, trucking buff. And uh, I think I'll give you the rest of the afternoon off, mate. You can uh, you can go and uh, do whatever you like now. With yeah. Thank you very much yeah. for your time. Yeah, it's a pleasure talking to you. And I'm, my, my brain is still going around in circles, but the... Uh, um, yeah, I sort of live with the industry. I can't. That's part of me. It'll never change. This is the Keep On Moving uh, podcast. We're talking trucking and all sorts of things. We've got a, a brand new uh, feature, and it's going to be uh, a monthly. We're talking with our trucking family around the world. We're starting with a gentleman called Mike Williams in Aussie, and we're going to herald Mike with a little waltzing Matilda. Woohoo! What's hot in Aussie trucking, Mike? What's happening over the ditch? We've got a, we've had a bit of a serious thing happen over here. Young list Michelle Pillar was driving a stock crate uh, down near Colac in Western Victoria, and and she made a bit of a mistake, and it ended up laying on its lid. Unfortunately, she sustained some fairly serious injuries, uh, lost both of her legs in that accident. The one of the local roadhouses where she's well known have started a fundraiser for her, and I suppose. The upside is that you know the community's wrapped around her, a wrap, uh, the community sort of wrapping themselves around her and trying to give her a bit of support. And uh, the company she works for, Boils, is probably one of the most recognisable stock carting businesses in Australia. Uh, they're they're helping her out. And it's only a young girl, 25, and it's sad to see. On the other side of it, it started a conversation now about how this sort of thing happens all too often in Australia, not just to her, but to to hundreds of other people and uh, perhaps it's time for us to start talking over here anyway about uh, maybe a fund to help people out in the immediate aftermath of an accident. And I I understand there's a huge groundswell of support like with fundraising that's swung in behind her. People have been donating all sorts of things to be auctioned off and and, uh, it's well over. It's into the thousands. It's it's into, well, it's over 10,000 last time I looked at the, the GoFundMe. Yeah, just an incredible amount of things that people have, from inside the industry have donated to be auctioned off. It's, it's not something I've ever seen before. Yeah, not, not, at, the, not at this level. And, and, and it's a really interesting point because quite often you hear, you know, sentiments went to sort of truck drivers from from a past era to, and mm. saying how the, they they have a sense that the camaraderie has been lost yeah. off the road. And I always argue that 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 I, I understand what they're saying, but like so many things in road transport, it's been it's been foisted upon us. Like, yeah. you know, we never had booking times that we had that we had to meet. And so if you do, if, you know, if you turn up at the booking time and say, I you know, I did a social service on the side of to help me make change a battery or fix his lights or do something it's met with more often than not just with like a brick wall so yeah quite often truck drivers today would love to stop mm. but but they just know the whole rest of the week's going to be thrown into turmoil whereas once upon a time it was about community first and and stuff later yeah mate the mateship uh, has certainly suffered in this game in fact i've actually written about that uh been published in big rip uh, been published in big rigs the article i wrote asking if the mateship is gone. I had a chat with uh, like Barry, who's a, a mate of mine, and Barry Grimson. He was one of the guys that started the Razorback Blockade uh, in 1979 here in Australia. And 
him and I had this same conversation. He feels like you. Times have changed. It's not the drivers have changed. It's the circumstances around the drivers, the way we're pushed into having to just keep going and keep going. Of course, we've got all the compliance stuff over here as well with the cameras up and down, taking pictures of you and timing you everywhere you go. And guys running electronic logbooks now. There's a, there's a whole raft of things that have changed. And look, some of it's good, but but some of it sort of it's basically changed the fabric that we got used to as the as drivers. Yeah, we wish you all the best for yeah for yeah. recovery and um and and like you say, it it's a it's a fascinating industry because I've always said you know we it's a an airplane has a cockpit full of people, a train is hugely restricted on where it goes, a boat's got yeah. a party of thousands on the deck, but twenty twenty three over here twenty three meters and and a three and a half metres of lane doing 90 kilometres an hour at 50 tonne and the complete control of one person. It, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a big risk game. Yeah. You know, and you've got that thing out in the, in the complete public arena at the behest of whatever, whoever you're passing. That's right. Yeah, no, it's incredible when you actually sit back and you think about the mechanics of what we do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a hell of a lot there going on. Yeah, there yeah. is. There is. Well, you've just talked to us about dropping the borders into Queensland. And yep. um, so did the so what was that all about? Was that just the the pressure for supply chain got too great and they had to stop? stop oh, do you, you really want to start me on this stuff? <laughs> have I have I pressed a button? <laughs> there's a red there's a red rag sort of. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, I, I I've actually banned COVID conversation on my show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so we won't talk about Western Australia. No, no, look, that's not it. Uh, look, the, the, quite the, the short story of it is, I think that uh, common sense has finally broken out. Yeah. Um, we can, <laughs> you know, it's all got too hard. Yeah. Uh, the, there's the, the, whole, the whole PCR test thing, the, the border pass thing, the whole having people stopped on the side of the road and uh, the queues for the traffic and, you know, everybody's just up in arms or they have been. Uh, about getting back to normal. We've, in, we've had this stuff going on for two years now, like everyone else. The level of um, insanity is probably the wrong word. Um, the, the level of, of just compliance that people have had to go through on a day-by-day basis. We've had the rules changed twice in one day over here sometimes. Just ridiculous. So what's happened now, uh, there are no longer any border closures, there are no longer any requirements for passes, there are no longer any requirements to prove that uh, you've, uh, you've had a negative PCR or any of those sort of things. And as a consequence, uh, even though we do have this VAX mandate that's in place, there's nowhere to prove that now. So there's nowhere to check it, there's no pass to put it on. It's sort of, it's sort of we've sort of come to the don't ask, don't tell stage now, I think. And that's the way it goes. Of course, Western Australia is an entirely different animal altogether. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I think that they think that they're a different country from time to time. Believe me, there's a certain level of uh, happiness in Western Australia. I know I've just spent the best part of a year over there. I think that uh, they could quite happily go their own way. If Mr McGowan said, let's uh, let's make Western Australia a separate country, I think there'd be a few people put their feet up. <laughs> but anyway, that's another story. Another time, mate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we love Western Australia here because just when we think that, that we, you know, we couldn't be any more incarcerated here, we think, oh, yeah, no, we are a bit freer because... <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, I'll tell you what, there's just so much going on. It's a great pleasure for me to come and 
have a chat with you. And if you've got listeners that have got any questions about anything they want me to find out about, I'm happy to dig into all that stuff. Oh, look, absolutely. And if um, everybody heard that, um, Mike's happy. You said, flick me your questions and um, at the contacts for the, uh, for the podcast, which you'll see on the, on the website. And uh, yeah, we'll put some questions to you about it. It can be anything, yeah, lifestyle, absolutely. Is, absolutely anything, absolutely anything. So, Mike, Except for if, the colour of my underpants, mate. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and well, if that's the taste of things to come for the next uh, however long, 12 months, two years, half a century, then <laughs> I, I think we're, we're going to get on just just fabulously. And um, and so don't forget, everybody, Friday afternoons, the podcast drops. It's uh, Mike Williams on the road podcast in Australia. And so that's two great uh, listening opportunities once a month with Keep On Moving at this stage and once a week with Mike on, on the road. Thanks so much, Mike, for coming on. Looking forward to talking to you next month. Thanks, mate, Dave. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Now, you're listening to the Keep On uh, Moving podcast uh, out of New Zealand. And our next correspondent is actually Will Shire in England. And Dave, he writes for what magazine? Uh, Will's editor at Commercial Motor Magazine. Now, just to give a bit of a background on that, um, readers and listeners will know that New Zealand Trucking uh, Media or New Zealand Trucking Magazine is the associate member of the International Truck of the Year organisation, the associate member for New Zealand. And Will is uh, Will's magazine, Commercial Motor. Uh, Will's uh, actually a voting judge for the International Truck of the Year uh, jury. So he's Will's big time. And uh, so we have that association and we've, I've had uh, quite a few uh, drinks with Will on different trips and he's a fantastic bloke and his dedication can't be questioned because when he did this interview he was actually sitting in the back of the car while it was snowing with COVID. I do, I've had it for, for nine days now, my whole family had it for the, the second time in six weeks um, but um, I'm the only one who's still still testing positive, they're all back to school now the kids. And you say it's like a heavy cold. Yeah, 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 exactly that. Um, at its worst it was like a, a mild flu. I mean I've been vaccinated and boosted as well um so yeah a mild flu heavy cold oh well all the best from us here mate and um yeah speedy recovery and moving on to the subjects of trucks in europe and the uk in winter what's uh what have you got to tell us what's what's happening in the motherland all anyone's talking about at the moment is um alternative fuels you know it's 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 madness isn't it despite the fact that 99.9 percent of everything that's sold is still uh, diesel the truck manufacturers only want to talk about their electric offerings you know they're definitely going to different uh they've got different positions on the uh, the way forward here haven't they yep. so how much is fuel over there it's around about the same as you i think um we're paying one pound 50 a liter and so who's where, where's the where's the pace being set in the alternative fuels thing like who like you say the talk's all there but what's actually going on who's got wheels on the ground so you can buy an electric volvo DAF. i think that's about it at the moment volvo are especially proactive you can order just about anything including arctics and um oh and tippers as well but the only one that's actually been delivered at the moment are their um their rigids the fl and the fe oh and i'm forgetting of course Renault as well they're, they're, they're pretty advanced again rigids so are these pure evs or or fc evs no, they're, they're pure EVs. You know, over the years, I've driven so many different trucks here, but um, I recently had the chance to drive the, the Volvo, and the public reaction was incredible. Normally, the public don't notice you, notice a truck, you know, unless it's to complain. But you pull over in one of them, and, um, you know, there's so many questions. What does it, you know, what does it cost? Uh, what's the range? They're, they're really, really interested. Right, and I suppose they know because it's emblazoned with huge, I'm an electric oh, cool. truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, of course, that's what's going to happen, isn't it, with the, the first ones that go on the road. Um, you'll get these big multinational fleets running thousands of trucks, 
but they'll get one electric truck, sticker it up with how green they are, tell the whole world. Meanwhile, the diesel trucks will do the hard work. What, what was interesting, it, when I took it around central London, um, which of course they, it's, it's free of the congestion charge and the, uh, the LEZ and everything, um, what the public don't realise is a current modern Euro 6 diesel engine is actually cleaner than the air they're breathing in London anyway. So modern diesel trucks are cleaning up the air in the capital. Yes, yep. that's that's right. And we've got one crusader of of we're throwing out the baby with the bathwater uh, in New Zealand, and he's very um, he's very uh, uh, strong on this that we actually haven't we actually haven't uh, milked the cow on the diesel, and we've actually got a far better product than what we think we've got. Um, we shouldn't just you shouldn't just chuck it out. That's right. I mean, Scan, you have just launched their new um, um, super drive line, haven't they? And um, that's more than fifty percent thermal efficiency. Yeah, and that's the part they thought they'd never they'd never reach. So I mean, we've had a lot of New Zealanders over here locked down for quite some time, and they've been saving their shekels or something. And we are a nation of travellers. We had to travel to get here. So when we are ready to go, and when we're ready to get on our planes and blast off to all corners of the world uh, again, well, you've you've got a destination for truck enthusiasts that might be of interest. I hear. Absolutely. Stonely Park in Warwickshire, um, right in the heart of the UK. So what we're doing, we're launching a massive great truck show over here called the Road Transport Expo. It's going to be held at the end of June and the first couple of days of July. And um, it promises to be massive. We've got just about all the truck manufacturers signed up for that one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That should be great. So is it going to be like trade show and display or are they going to be working exhibits and things to, is it going to be interactive things to do or looking or just look on or, or how, what's the format, mate? There is, there's a bit of everything there. So we're going to have a main central hub um, and then several zones all around it. So we'll have a tipper zone, a trailer zone, a tanker zone, um, a crane zone, and also a ride and drive. So uh, people who sign up to come when, when they register for free, incidentally, they can uh, choose what trucks they want to have a go in. Fantastic. Well, so there's there's the place to go when your winter's coming on and you're starting to feel a bit cold. Head over to sunny England in June and go to Warwickshire and look at look at a ginormous truck show. I'll let you go. Will, you're in the back of a car in the freezing cold to keep out of the family and so you're in a quiet place. So all the best, mate. Keep well. Drink, uh, drink lots of uh, tonics and um, talk to you next month. Brilliant. Cheers, Dave. Will Shires, <laughs> who we look forward to catching up with uh, on a monthly basis, hopefully in, in better health and, and maybe not sitting in the back of a car <laughs> trying to hide from people. Right now, it's time to call in the boys. Kirk um, uh, Kirkbeck, uh, Cool. Cool Clock. Cock Clock. 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 Yeah. I'm supposed to abuse you. You don't have to abuse yeah. yourself. Oh, I don't have to. Oh. It's self mutilation. He just likes it that way. And the, yeah. editor, and the editor of New Zealand Trucking Magazine, Gavin Myers. Hi, Gav. Hey, Muzz. Again. Okay, let's have a look at what's in the magazine for February. Yeah, it's another top issue, if I say so myself, I reckon. Um, Dave, maybe you kick us off with um, a little wrap of the, the lead. Yeah, absolutely, Gav. And uh, I was in my element once again back in rural transport. Love rural transport. Well, love all transport, actually, as you well know. But, uh, yep, rural transport. And I just love the IP in those places. And I tried to sort of convey that in the story, the, 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 the information that the guys hold, the, the how engaged they are with their customers, how well they know their customers. And, uh and just an absolute joy to spend a, a couple of days with uh, Aaron Tate, the driver of the of the CF five thirty Euro six staff, and and then you know sit down and have a yarn in the dispatch office with Kent Rowland at uh, Rural Transports Kurau Depot, and uh, you can't get any more rural than 
rural transports Kurau depot. So yeah, that's the that's the main that's the cover job and the in the February issue. And mate, what a fantastic place! What fantastic people! Mm-hmm. Understand, Carl? Um, you feature in the magazine. What was it, page uh, ninety-eight? Uh, well, yeah, no, I don't. I don't feature myself, but we wrote a fantastic <laughs> story. Doug Elliott, um, a model truck um, extraordinaire from down Tauranga away. Got history that goes right back, um, riding around with the likes of uh, all the boys at Alf Wallings and uh, over the Napier Taupo and so forth into Pampac. Um, you know, so some great history there. But his models are absolutely incredible. They're um, just. Uh, yeah, the scratch building, the level that he goes to is, is just uh, mind-boggling. Like when we see those models, like Marty Crooks' Kenworth a couple of months ago and, and now the Elf Walling Max, you know, and we remember those trucks, eh? Like we, oh, they're like absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's just the, it's the level of detail that the boys are going to now. You know, they, there's a real challenge, I think. I don't, it, it's not really sort of one-upmanship or anything like that, but, um, I mean, like, it's just little things like um, in the ignition of the FR, there's actually a set of keys. You know, I mean, one twenty-fifth scale. There's a set of keys in the ignition. Yeah, no, those aren't the only Max uh, in the mag this month uh, with a, with impeccable detail. There's also a um, great story on uh, a couple of uh, impeccably restored FRs from the west coast of the South Island. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, Murray Brunning and Les Hayden, and and this 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 story, apart from the fact that they are the two of the most immaculate restorations I think you could ever feast your eyes upon. It just it just dispels the old myth of I don't have time because these guys one of them's a full time truck driver and one of them was a full time uh, brewer through the bulk of the restorations and 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 now he works uh, in the uh, in the rural support business in in the west coast and uh, they've restored these two bloody mags to the point from from absolutely nothing to to better than they were when they would have left Palmerston North no disrespect whatsoever to the old team at Palmerston North but just the time and the attention to detail and the yeah, polish yeah. The, the polishing yeah. of the polishing of uh, bolt heads and and just they are absolutely stunning yeah and from Max and Greymouth we go to the top truck of the month of you can make your vacuum cleaner pristine and powerful. The top truck is a Hino 700 series, a ginormous vacuum cleaner that the um, that that looks absolutely uh, stunning. If you want to make your vacuum cleaner look just a superb showpiece, then Clark Underground from Palmerston North have done that. They are proud of their uh, proud of their kit and proud of their truck, and it's so rightly deserves the uh, the, the poster spot. And it, and it's something a little out of the ordinary. Uh, for the poster section. Speaking of cleaning up, the clean and nice and clean, the uh, Alexanders have replaced their uh, Alexander Group have replaced the K200 Kenworth that towed the uh, the AdBlue diesel emission fluid tanker uh, to uh, with a brand new. Uh, what is it, Gab? What's arrived in the Waikato? It's a celebratory oh, truck celebrating 50 years in business, and it is. Yeah, hey? it's a very special, very powerful new Scania. It's a it's the world's first 770S 2.3-meter sleeper cab tractor. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's joined their fleet. Yeah, and it's an absolute yeah. jaw-dropper, isn't it? Oh, oh, stunning. Absolutely stunning. That, that would have had the team back in uh, in Sweden, but he um, sort of drooling, looking at a 6x4 with 2.3 going down the production line, wouldn't it? And two diffs. <laughs> and Yeah, that's it. Two, <laughs> two diffs, rather. Six, six before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a big sign on it, this is how you make a real truck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> This is where traction starts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So clean cargo and clean lines, and that doesn't, the clean doesn't end there, Gav. Yeah, yeah. Um, we also take a look at what might be the future of trucking in New Zealand. We don't know, maybe, um, with the uh, the first hydrogen-powered 
Hyundai Exient to land on local shores. Um, New Zealand uh, being in a the very fortunate position of being the only the third market in the world to get one of these trucks um, after Hyundai's home ground of uh, Korea and um, and of course Sweden. New Zealand Trucking Magazine, the original voice of the New Zealand trucker. Okay, let's talk uh, classic trucks now. Here's our man on the ground, Dave Ching. Here we are today talking to Clive Gordon, who has got a few classic trucks here in Canterbury, and we're just going to discuss what he's bought, his latest project, and some other ones that he's got underway. So what's the one you bought recently, Clive? Just bought an OLB Bedford. <coughs> bought it off a friend uh, who uh, who started the project and then got sidetracked into uh, British sports cars. Anyway, I've made him an offer he couldn't refuse. My father used to have one um, as a truck for a general carrying business in Christchurch, and that's the attraction, really. So has it been panel-painted, engine transmission overhaul? What's, what sort Gary's of it, Gary's actually done quite a lot of work to it. It's, it's, uh, it's been painted. Um, it's it, it's a, a really good runner. It's not road-registered at the moment. Needs a deck built and a couple of very minor things. So it's a wee bit further on than, uh, it's a wee bit further on than a couple of the other projects <laughs> You said your father had one years ago, so I take it once once you've got it all back together again, it's ready for signage. You're going to put your father's name back on the door? Absolutely, absolutely. It'll probably it'll probably finish up living in the um, in the Timaru Museum because they're not, um, you know. Let's be honest, an OLB is something not that you're going to take on a lot of uh, rallies, and truck <laughs> yeah. runs, and things. But uh, it will it will go out a bit. You know, the likes of. Uh, Perhaps wheels at Wanaka, if we're lucky enough for it to go ahead next yes. year, yep. it may well get a ride down on the transporter and then cool. and then get to uh, get to drive around down there and that sort of thing. Nice. What about the KM? You got you've got a KM. You're a tri- where'd you find that? New Plymouth. Uh, Richard Webb from the North Island Classic Commercials put me onto that. He said there was one rusting out the back of the um, Technology Museum out there, and I went. I, I managed to track down the owners. It had I don't know. I, I don't know what went on, but anyway, they needed to remove their stuff from on the back of the museum. So went up, flew up, looked at it, decided that um, it wasn't beyond redemption and uh, they, I mean, you just can't find them these That's days right. anyway. Yep. Yep. Um, neither of the people that own the ones that we used to run many years ago um, were willing to sell them back. <laughs> I purchased that one and while I was there, had a D-Series Ford, uh, which is also uh, V6 Detroit powered. But now a friend of mine has bought and it's, it's, uh, it's, we've had it running. And he's got another cab. It needs another cab. Got another cab for it. Um, but that's dear. But that's quite about as far as that one's got at the moment. Um, yeah. But that's not my project. So, <laughs> <laughs> so KM six B seventy one. Yes, KM six B seventy one nine speed road ranger. Uh, what they call the hockey stick box. Um, overdriven gearbox. Yes. Um, they were quite a powerful truck and and and, and, a, and, and a fast truck in their day. Yes. The Shell Company ran a few. Both ones that we had were ex Shell Company. Burnett's Motors ran them on freight. Yes. To Ashburton. They had a lot of tandem drive ones. Burnett's. Yes. Did. Yes, they did, and had them on stock and freight. Yes. Um, and bulk brain. Hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. There was a few of them around. Sadly, not many. Little's had a few. Little's had a few. I believe Jerry Baldry's got one. That's um, I chased one on trade me and Jared beat me to it but um, <laughs> it's it's in quite good order it's in his his collection and yes. I believe it's going back into uh, Burnett's colours. Yeah cutting into your one. Well, I'm going to do ours back in the old Overland colours that we used to run them in which is uh, 
<laughs> and a not very attractive brown <coughs> with a white roof. Uh, yeah, I'll put it back to the way to the way it was. I'm hoping to have it completed, and uh, we the company's 45 years old in September, <coughs> and I'm hoping to have it completed and there when we have a we're going to have a bit of a celebration of 45 years because none cool. of us are sure whether it's still going to be around for 50 <laughs> <laughs> so so uh hopefully we'll we'll, we'll we'll have it there oh, i'm sure we will what we'll, about what about the team out in the yard the english import sleep camp 6 we bought that into the country in i think it was 85 or 86 um tnds bought in 12 of them they did a raffle draw, Alistair McLaughlin. Um, we went down on a Saturday morning and, and they had the fleet numbers in a, in a tin. Uh, actually, they were Spates bottle caps that they took off the top <laughs> of Spates stubbies, to be quite honest. And we drew the numbers, the fleet numbers. Uh, we drew the one that's out here. It's, it was the fleet spare. When we got it, um, all we had was a written report and it said that the compressor was noisy. It's 2022 and the compressor's still noisy. <laughs> Go um, on, Detroit. Yeah, we've, we've never touched it. We ran it on um, line haul for, um, it used to deliver white wear up and down the island for um, Atlas Appliances. Yes. This was on general duties, got retired, um, left in the corner of the yard, rusted the roof out, was in a pretty sad state really and one day boys said I think that should go to the scrap I had a, a rush of the stuff to the brain and went no it should go in the workshop uh, so in the workshop it went and we got the a local sheet metal guy to fabricate a complete new roof for it and uh, you know what you see is what you got now yeah it's a neat old truck isn't it oh uh, no well they were they were a very advanced truck for their day um, they had in cab diesel heaters in them yes no aircon. Um, that came a bit later, but you know, the, for the for the sleeper bunks and all that sort of this sleeper cab. Um, I mean, the curtain rails in them, you could yes. close them off and all that sort of thing. In mid eighties, yeah. you know, nobody else had even even sort of started that yeah. really. And they were very economical. The ninety twos um, compared to um, we were running sort of miles per gallon back then. Still, yes. can remember getting over seven miles to the gallon out of out of that on the on the on the white wear run um, down the island, which was which was pretty impressive. It's actually pretty impressive. Sure, figures even to, even today. That's right. Yeah. What about the RF? I actually saw it on on uh, social media. Guy. Um, um, Craig Detling had, had posted this thing um, and uh, a chap called Leaky Irwin owned it. Um, it was up in the middle of the Forgotten Highway. I looked at it and we had an ERF at the time. Um, uh, and I thought this one was a good candidate for for um, you know for, for a classic truck. Anyway, flew up, saw it, um, liked it, we came to it. We came to what I thought was an exceptionally good deal. Um, one of the guys from here and we went up or oh, a few months later, I think the poor guy didn't think we were coming for it. Stopped in Stratford, got some batteries, and went through to where the truck was, fired it up, and drove it home. Shivers, really. Uh, turns out it's got a five two five select in it. Nice. Uh, we didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't realise what yeah. until, until, until our mechanic said, uh, "Oh, you realise what you've got there." No, um, and once again, you know, it's, it was stored in a shed up there. Um, the guy was going to use it for a. He bought it. Was going to use it for a transporter, but he really, really loves S lines. Bought it. Started to convert it for a, for a, uh, a transporter tractor unit. Found an S line, poked it in the shed, and that was the end of that. 
Yeah, once again, um, you know, the, the, those early European trucks, they, they're really um, they're really quite impressive yes. compared to compared to some of the some of the other things that are around at the time. You know, the ERFs were sort of the number one truck in their day really. They yes. were they were right up there with you. I mean, apart from uh, people that could have a Kenworth or something. Yes. Um, the ERFs were probably the the pinnacle of the truck in the day. Um, and pretty good mechanical spec, comes rock or road ranger and all the rest of it. Absolutely. Nothing yeah. to go wrong with yeah. them. Yeah, um, supermarket truck, you can buy parts anywhere. Very, very similar to a Kenworth, but um, you know, a cab you'd want to spend different all day. Yeah, different shed and a cab you'd want to spend all day and not rather than And it wouldn't rust. No, no, no <laughs> rust. No, no rust and for some rust. You know, and for us bigger fellas, plenty of room. Yes, yes. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So uh, we'll look forward to seeing the RF out there. What we'll probably do is get some photos of it when it's finished. Yeah. And um yeah, try and get some history on it. Try and get some other photos, you know, of what it was when it was new, who had it new and all the rest of it. Windsong Transport. Oh, cool, another one. Yeah, yeah, no, it went to, it, went, it, it was new to Windsong. Oh, nice. Um, oh, there's, there's one of those in Hanman too. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh, yes. Right. Well, yeah, it's going to go back into Windsong colours too, so. It's Clive, much appreciated, and um, we'll keep tabs on what's going on, and um, yeah, look forward to some progress shots of the OLB and the KM and everything else. Righto, well, you saw, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're around on the next... Fortnight or so, I'd say uh, I was talking to the, the past owner of the OLB last night, and um, they'll probably be here next week. Oh, cool. I'll look forward to having a look at that. Yeah, excellent. Right Thanks, Clive. Right Thank you. All good. Thank you, David. That was fascinating, actually. Industry corner. Uh, let's do the round, starting with Blake Noble, who's an operator, of course, from Transcot. One topic that's, that's uh, shot to our attention, and I, I think for me around... Um, these changing levels of, of COVID, which we don't seem to be able to avoid. I think there are two things for industry that, that just jump out at me. First one is around pragmatism. And I think um, it, it's very easy for us to get lost in procedure and protocol and, and forget that on the most part, a lot of our team do work in, in some degree of isolation. Uh, and that there are things that we can be doing and that we need to actually fight for uh, in terms of that so that we can uphold uh, what we're doing as much as anything, to keep our teams mobile. I know there's the mental health component that gets that's spoken about, but, but on the whole, uh, my exposure to it is that people really want to contribute and feel as though they're delivering literally uh, to the cause. So that, that, that pragmatism and being practical about our steps, I think, is, is huge. And it links to the second bit for me, which is around integrity of, of what we're doing. And that's not just the integrity of, of doing what we're saying we're doing, but actually the integrity of the supply chain that we we are a part of, you know, that, that the flow on effects of us not opting to follow some basic steps has a major uh, flow on effect to, to so many other sectors, whether it's our own our customers or suppliers, we all need to uphold that. And, and, and from my perspective, it is about all of us, whether we agree with the overall response of, of, of the government and, and the agencies that we're dealing with or not, We've just got to follow those basics. And there's some steps that, that we can all be taking, whether we're pro-vaccine, not pro-vaccine, around the use of scanning and masks and just general hygiene and cleanliness. And I think uh, we need to just look, look long-term and just deal with what we can, get on with it, and um, yeah, be done with it. Have you sorted the logistics for your company in respect to what will happen if you suddenly have people that have to isolate for extended periods? Yeah, we have, and we've, we've, we've had some broad exposure to this previously. Um, look, we, we are doing everything that we can to keep people in isolation as, as, as a matter of course now. And I think actually, 
ironically enough, uh, at the end of last week, we'd already put those plans in place because we could see what was coming. I think it's just reinforcing to, to everyone that it's not just when you're at work, it's the it's your whole uh, environment, um, making sure that you are following those basic steps when you're here, there or anywhere. And yes, look, we do we do have, have, have plans. I think our focus is on the fact that for us, the, the cab of the truck is an environment that we can actually keep relatively isolated. So uh, in some regards, even if, if there's some concerns, that to me, there, there are ways that someone can keep working in isolation. And, and that's where I say about being pragmatic. We need to, um, you know, take the approach of, of, of that. Whether it's someone operating in the cab of a digger, a dump truck, whatever they're doing, that those people to me can, can, can keep working in, in some form. We need to find ways of doing that rather than viewing it as a, you know, literal red light, um, which I just find the most negative. Uh, connotation that we can, it just everything grinds to a halt and that's not how it needs to be nor how any of us want it to be so um, that's where we're at Industry Corner Dave, it's time to talk within the industry now Yep, yep, associations and uh, we did the rounds of the association heads again this month and of course this month we all came back from holiday to you know what starts with O, ends in Macron uh, and uh, everyone's panicking and freaking out about uh, the arrival of the Omicron. And so that was obviously the question, question we pitched to the uh, association uh, head. So uh, first up this month is James Smith, CAO, COO of the National Road Carriers. Thanks, Dave. Your first point regarding Omicron, I think a, a blind man riding backwards on a galloping camel could have seen this one coming. Uh, you know, again, that advantage that New Zealand has of uh, because of the moat we have around us, uh, you could see it was happening last year, wasn't it? In Europe and Australia, they were facing Omicron. So there was a reasonable expectation that we'd be prepared for it. So it, it has come as a bit of a um, shock that um, we, in fact, aren't. Uh, so uh, that, that's, that, that's caused a bit of angst. I think it's highlighted general unpreparedness of especially Ministry of Health. And then you've got a whole pile of other government agencies that are struggling now to make up for that shortfall. So we're seeing requests now for you know, critical critical driver lists, um, you know, critical worker lists coming through from MB. And again, you sit there and go, what is the difference between a critical worker and an essential worker? Because we used to have essential workers, didn't we? And now we've got critical workers. So it would appear that um, people were struggling with the definition of essential, so they've just changed the name to critical. Uh, I don't know, how, don't know how that fixes the problem, but uh, apparently uh, it does. So we're busy supplying um, Ministry of Transport with with, um, with, with critical worker lists um, in the hope that that's going to, um, uh, for when we move into the phase uh, two approach and, and phase three. Uh, so the, the truly observant would have noticed that there's very little, appears to be very little difference between phase three and phase two, uh, but um, I'm sure they've kept that there as a surprise for later. So we'll be ready to deal with that. Again, the, the driver shortage issue you raised with Australia, um, Australia's just one, one country that we're going to you know, potentially lose drivers through. And we're going to see that as the, as the world economy op- uh, reopens uh, and, and, and countries start to open their borders, that everyone's short of drivers. America's short of drivers, Canada's short of drivers, Europe's short of drivers, Australia's short of drivers. And the drivers have always moved in like almost like a weather pattern uh, around the globe, haven't they? I mean, we've, we've seen it for, for decades. Uh, we, we tend to lose them to Australia. Australia tends to lose them 
to the states and the states tend to lose them to yeah and they go in this sort of great great circle of, of life now the the critical thing for, for for us at the moment of course is we don't have that current of of, of drivers entering our system uh, because our, our our borders are currently shut so the danger for us is we're going to empty out faster than we can uh, we can we can bring them in some some may be a little bit more cautious about you know taking the the leap offshore um, especially given the fact that you know, it may be difficult to get back, you don't know what's happening, global uncertainty, that sort of thing. So, but we are going to see a, it's not helping our drive short, which is why we uh, it's even more critical that we look at all sorts of different ways to get people back into our industry. Probably the other thing that is really going to be of, of importance between now and April, and that all the listeners need to really start thinking about how they want to engage with 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 us and the government, is the review of road user charges. So the government announced that on uh, Friday uh, that the uh, road user charges are up for review and the, the consultation document is fairly um, fairly comprehensive. It's about 80 odd, uh, let's just check here, 74 pages, 74 pages of questions and options and different things they want to do or are thinking of doing with road user charges. So as it's a very significant uh, part of a road transport business, um, I would strongly suggest that every single operator in the country actually gets engaged, gets hold of um, gets hold of us, and 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 if they, and puts their ten cents worth in, because this is one of those ones that once it's locked and loaded, it's going to be with us for some time. So yeah, get get your thinking caps on, have a have a natter about it, and then get in touch as to what what your concerns are. Uh, endorse what you say there about the ruck review we need to have a say on it we need to all get our voice in on it because as we've seen with speed limits it takes a powerful lot of lobbying before there's any sign of this lot changing a pre-intended plan that's right this is going to be yet another one we we need volume of uh submissions uh because as we've seen as you mentioned speed limit reviews and other things they want the numbers so there's no point in us putting in one or two submissions because we'll be absolutely outnumbered by um, the cast of thousands that will come in from wanting uh, ruck changes to suit them. So it's volume and quality. We need both. Yeah, awesome, James. Thanks very much. And a great little uh, comment there on the uh, upcoming road user charges review, which you absolutely must be a part of. You must have a say about that. So uh, so get in touch with your associations. And, and I'm a great believer in power and the strength of numbers behind a body. So if you're not in an association, find one, get in one, stir it up, tell them what you want to say and be part of that uh, discussion on that review. Uh, second up, uh, Nick Leggett. Uh, he is CEO of Iara Aotearoa Transporting New Zealand. Nick. Yeah, so Omicron certainly uh, is on its way if it's not sort of in our communities yet. And that's part of the assurance that I think we need to give our transport industry and all the people who work in it is that the government is equipped and has a plan to be able to deal with uh, Omicron and that we don't see too many drivers taken out all at once because they're having to test and isolate and, and, uh, and obviously fight uh, Omicron if, if it's caught. And look, the work of Transporting New Zealand in this first couple of weeks of the new year has really been focused around trying to get those assurances from government, talking to transport officials. We are concerned that there are 
it appears to be a desire again to try and um, put a, a critical status on some businesses and some services. Uh, and of course, we've told the minister very clearly uh, at a meeting last week that we know uh, that the supply chain only works when all freight is able to move, and that's what we should be aiming for. Um, it's difficult to know exactly where they're going to fall. It looks as though that MB will have a registration system for uh, truck drivers and, and businesses to allow them to operate. We're waiting on details of that. Um, we are keeping, obviously, the industry updated with the information we know. That's on our transporting.nz website. Uh, we're giving daily updates on our COVID page there. Um, but it's also those supporting services, Dave, that you will appreciate. Things like if Omicron hits and you know, big swathes of workforce are taken out, that those, those support services that influence the trucking industry uh, and help us move, like uh, rucks and licensing, uh, coughs, uh, servicing, uh, those uh, services need to keep operating. It's vital. We've also asked um, the minister and transporting officials uh, to think about uh, perhaps opportunities where driving times uh, can be a bit more relaxed and also um, the potential for some vehicles to perhaps carry a little bit more of a load than they usually do. Because if we are going to be losing drivers to the virus for a period of time, uh, we may have to carry more with less. And I think that more with less is really the, the critical issue, uh, issue we want to get across to the government. We want our drivers to be as safe as possible. We want them to have access to rapid antigen testing. And of course, the government's uh, taken a lot of that over uh, to be able to sort of direct themselves uh, out of the hands of, of transport businesses and, and, and under the control of government. And that's something we're quite concerned about. But we need to know what the rules are. We need to know what the plan is to give clarity to, to drivers and to transport operators and everybody working in and around the industry so they know what the rules are to allow them to keep operating. Now, it's, it's not all bad. I think we're hearing some positive things, but it's just about being clear. So we know the rules and uh, the industry knows the rules. Yep, excellent. Great commentary. And that's right. And interesting your point there, uh, interesting point you raised there about the vitalness of the service industries too, because, you know, big trucks don't move on flat tyres and they don't carry spare ones anymore. This is it. It's all those services, eh? And it's, 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 it's getting um, assurances that, that people have got their plans and the government's got their plan so this stuff can continue to operate. We know that there are going to be fewer staff and I think that's a big risk because, um, of course, uh, you know, people are going to get knocked over by this. Um, but what we want are really sensible testing and open testing uh, abilities and facilities uh, and the rules not being too harsh. So you don't have to isolate for two weeks. And then if somebody in your family gets, you have to isolate for another 10 days. Uh, it's actually why we made a call in the last week to ask those people that hold a heavy vehicle license. It could be working in any, any part of the economy at the moment, but if they've driven a truck previously and got experience, can they please put their hand up? And I suspect people watching today will know of people that fit that bill. Can they register and say, yep, yeah, prepared to do some shifts, prepared to be a relief driver at some point? Because we've got to think ahead. We can't just sit back as an industry and rely on the government to do everything. We've got to show some uh, that we've got some solutions. So I'm really hopeful that... Um, uh, look, this is a smart industry. It's an industry that's used to doing more with less. Um, we've just got to channel that and be allowed to make decisions for ourselves and not have the government think that they need to be involved in every aspect because actually the skills and the expertise 
um, sit in, uh, on, with drivers on the road and, and, and people in transporting companies. Awesome, Nick. Thanks very much. And a great comment there and really uh, nice, uh, really good points there about uh, uh, putting pressure back on the government about what, what they need to do in order to help us shift a lot more goods on a fewer trucks in a crisis. And uh, heading to the South Island now um, for the uh, New Zealand Trucking Association uh, CEO, Dave Boyce. Yeah, well, certainly welcome, uh, Dave. Good to catch up with you and certainly welcome to everyone else uh, for 2022. Um, I think it's going to be an uh, interesting year again. Um, yeah, certainly COVID's continuing to impact on our lives. Um, the latest Omicron, Omicron, I'll get the pronunciation right, variant is certainly threatening to create havoc. Um, the very if the experiences of our friends in Australia are anything to go by, we're going to have some major disruption to our industry as people who get infected will need to self-isolate at home. And if this becomes our reality, supply chains will be put under pressure, causing massive disruption. It's important that you have plans in place to minimise the risk to your business, good protocols, practising safe hygiene and social distancing, having masks available for staff and rapid antigen testing kits available to test staff when required. Um, yeah, so the labour shortages uh, going forward, um, yeah, they, you know, we've got a bit of a shortage in our industry and uh, have had for a few years, and it's certainly uh, we're setting up for a perfect storm this year with uh, our counterparts in Australia. Um trying to poach our drivers, you know, but the thing is, as an industry, we, you know, we need to understand that we are competing in a global market, not just with Australia, but also um, I've seen the USA um, looking to try and bring in overseas drivers as well. Um, and even the UK, they're having the same issues. Um, there's certainly a number of overseas businesses actively recruiting in uh, New Zealand at the moment, and some of the wage rates or pay rates that they are offering are very, uh, very enticing. Um, so, as an industry, you know, we need to uh, be looking at that. Um, I know there's been a lot of upward pressure on drivers' wages rates, and um, I would say, as a transport operator, you need to be monitoring and uh, reviewing those constantly and um, you know it may mean that some of the work that you're doing uh, if you can't get the rates up um, you know you might be better off to leave it to um, someone who um, wants to give it a go but um, yeah it is a tough one. Um, I think it's certainly time for um, the government to put professional truck drivers back on the immigration skills list um, you know, certainly before the shelves are empty anyway. I mean, um, the push from government in recent years to try and uh, utilise uh, the untapped workforce resource in New Zealand, I think we've pretty well uh, exhausted that source. I don't think there's too much left that um, hasn't been sort of tapped into. Um, so, yeah, other subjects, certainly... Um, New capital equipment, including trucks and trailer components, are getting difficult to source. Um, very long order times. Uh, some suppliers have even stopped taking orders. And this is certainly driving up the values of any late model used equipment that may be available. I mean, you've only got to look at the Trade Me pages and uh, there ain't much in the way of late model stuff available. Most of it's 
pretty old and near the end of its economic life. Um, some operators are certainly keeping older equipment past its uh, economic life until new equipment becomes available, but this certainly has a cost on viability and I would say probably on safety as well. So um, um, another issue that I think is being handled at the moment, but could, could have bitten us um, well and truly is the uh, diesel exhaust fluid. Um, there's been a, um, a tightening of supply, certainly for the urea, which is used as the base uh, for the product. Um, and that's, of course, has driven up the costs. I mean, um, I think the base urea cost has gone up four to 500%. Um, and we're seeing that at the pumps now with the, um, with the AdBlue or diesel exhaust fluid prices going up, along with diesel fuel. I mean, um, that's uh, nudging up. and I, don't think it'll be long before we see $2 a litre at the retail pumps for diesel. Um, that's, you know, that's a huge increase on what we've been paying. So definitely important that you understand your costs. Um, and certainly if you're struggling with this, uh, give us a call. Uh, we do a lot of this uh, cost modelling on that for operators and can help you work out those costs if you're not um, sure of how to do that. Um, Road maintenance and lack of new roading infrastructure spend, spending continues to be an issue. Um, I believe a whole national strategy around this needs to be revisited and engagement with our industry is imperative. Uh, you only need to talk to a regular line haul operator to find out where the worst bits of the state highway network are. We hear of all the near misses as people make choices on under-resourced on the under-resourced roading network. Um, and I certainly received a reminder of it on Boxing Day, um, heading away in the caravan for a bit of a Christmas break. And I was only got about 65k out of Christchurch, um, went through a pothole and bang, went one of the caravan tires. So yeah, that was a good good start to the holiday. Not <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> um, and certainly there's an association, you know, the roading leads into quite a concern we have for safety on the road um, with driver training and all that. I believe um, there needs to be a lot more effort spent on training up the motorists um, that we share the roads with. Um, our safety man truck is, uh, the road safety truck is currently getting refurbished and fitted with the safety teeth. T360 virtual reality program. And this is a partnership we've got with the Australian Trucking Association. And we'll be relaunching this in the next few months. So quite exciting times with that. Um, and we'd certainly encourage as many uh, New Zealanders as possible to participate in this hugely successful program. That's probably about all I've got to say, Dave, that's of any importance. I could waffle on all day, I suppose. But Thank you, Dave. Excellent. Plenty to digest uh, in that one as well. Lots of information coming from Dave uh, again as, as last month. And so that's the association heads. I am going to uh, do what I said I was going to do. I'll Omicron sort of hijacked us a wee bit. So if you have a question about the industry you want me to pitch to the uh, association heads, and I'll bank it loud and clear now, I'm not going to ambush them. Send me in a question. I'll give them time to uh, to give us a response and uh, and see what they say. But yep, send in a question, an issue you might have with the industry, and we'll put it to them and see how they respond. Yeah, Dave needs more emails. Dave, yep, yep. I'm, 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 I'm gunning for fourteen hundred a minute. So that's it, boys, for another month. If you like what you hear, 
Uh, give us a good rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. Review the podcast. Even if you don't like it, please rate us. Rate us well. Um, so what can we expect next month, boys? What, uh, what's on the cards? Have, have uh, you got the feature interview ready for next month yet, Dave? Yes, I've got the feature interview sort of uh, lining up there in the background, but I'm not going to give too much away because uh, I want people to to uh, tune in with anticipation. But there is just so much in New Zealand that you can do feature interviews on. It's it's insane. Well, see you, fellas. Yeah. See you later, Muzzy. Kirk, body. Kirk, whatever. And go to page 98. Oh, page 98. New Zealand Trucking Magazine, the original voice of the New Zealand trucker.